Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Friday morning, September the 2nd, 843-661-0937. Rev, you got to get here earlier. Okay. If we're going to have these personal conversations, <laughs> you got to get here earlier. I'm here at about 10 minutes after 5. If you need my guidance and counseling, okay. get here at about 10 <clears throat> minutes after 5, and okay. I'll be happy to set aside these most important tasks to, to, to put your really? um, issues and, and situations as a priority. Well, well, Thank you, you for the favor you're doing me today, uh, by oh, the way. You're uh, you're, I'm sitting there lambasting a guy. He's doing me a favor um, today. <laughs> good morning, sir. Well, good good morning. <laughs> and and I, I really think you would prefer me to, to do like I do and come in a little bit just before 6 o'clock because I know you like quiet. I do. And, uh, See, when Freehold took the job and he comes in the first morning, I said, okay, is this guy going to be somebody that wants to be conversational in the morning? Um, because Cato, you know how chummy Cato was. Cato mm-hmm. would kind of stick his head in the door and want to talk 10 minutes about the Braves or, you know, Seinfeld or, you know, high school football. And I didn't want to be ugly because it's hard to be ugly to Cato. And I'd like, hey, uh, you know, I kind of I kind of I kind of tune in and lock out, time, yeah. you know, for the next 40 minutes. Um, I got this weird system of doing things. Not that anybody's interested, but I send myself 30 emails a day, 25 emails a day. Um, during the day. In other words, if I'm at lunch and I'm by myself and I've got a few moments to go to National Review or the Zero Hedge or Breitbart or Salon or Vox or whatever, I mean, I'll, I'll take advantage of those few moments by myself. I'll find an article. I'll read about six or eight articles or I'll, I'll skim six or eight articles. Um, and, and you've done it as long as I have now. You know the writers that are most interesting. So if this writer at Salon, maybe a liberal, but, but I know that they have a a provocative opinion. Um, so I'll send that email to myself and then I'll get home at about six or six 30 and I'll begin prioritizing those emails. So, um, but if there's a method to the madness, that's kind of what it is. Um, including some of the conversations I have out and about, obviously the political relationships that I've established and cultivated and maintained, um, over the years, I actually text a little bit on a name drop here for a second, but I was texting yesterday with our state's attorney general. And um, he was offering himself as a potential guest to explain what they're doing in relation to student debt. I mean, I, I had no idea the AG's office was interested in the issue of student debt, right. but he um, he actually sent me a text and said, hey, let's try to talk over the weekend um, and see if we can ske- ske- uh, schedule a time to get him on the show to I don't know, what, what does the AG have to do with student debt? I have any idea. I, I know what I think we need to talk to him about. What is that? Crime. Okay. Um, we're going to do that this morning. Okay. Uh, Rick and Bob, Jordan, and Lowe. I think all three will be here. The trifecta will be here this morning. Um, they actually sent me a text yesterday saying, hey, who called us out on the radio? I said, I don't know that anybody called you out on the radio. I think someone suggested that there are things you guys can do. We may not have to wait on the federal government to do X, Y, or Z. Maybe the state can mandate certain certain stipulations or provisions or, or whatnot. Uh, I'm in a really good mood today. Had three things kicking last night. Um, pulling for a Clemson Tiger who's now an Atlanta Brave. Spencer Strider yep. was lights out. Awesome. I mean, just lights out. He's a former Clemson Tiger, now an Atlanta Brave, and one of the dominant arms. I mean, he, I'd say this, Rev, and I'm, I'm jumping the gun a bit. He He's a little bit electric. I mean, DeGrom's an electric pitcher. Mm-hmm. Um, Smoltz was an electric pitcher. Maddox and Glavin were not, right? I mean, they were surgeons. They just kind of methodically carved you up and, and got you out. These other guys are just overpowering. 
And Strider's one of these guys when he's on, and last night he was on, and that fastball moves, and, and, he, and he's he throwing broke a, a Braves record last 16 night. strikeouts. 16 yep. strikeouts. Hasn't happened in the Atlanta era of the Braves or uh, the Milwaukee era of the Braves. I think last time it happened was in Boston. Yeah, 16's a bunch, man. I mean, that, that's a lot Warren of strikeouts. Spawn. It's a little bit like, what was the name? Kerry from the Cubs. He struck out 21 night. Is it Kerry? Anyway, the, um, the Cubs mm-hmm. had a phenom. A little bit like Strider. Had arm trouble. That's what you worry about one of these young kids that throws it so John Brown hard is their arm doesn't have I mean, the human arms not made to throw a baseball 100 miles an hour but so many times I mean it's made to throw a baseball 100 miles an hour obviously because some people do but it's not made to throw it 100 but so many times and some of these young guys don't understand how to pace themselves and coaching staffs and and pitching coaches and whatnot I don't want to say abuse the the the, the commodity they have or the asset they have but it's like hey man we're worried about next year, next year. I mean, we, we got to catch the Mets. Um, I still believe the Mets were the winners of the last three days. And I think you'll agree with me. And I'll make a, not a profound statement, but I think a very accurate statement. If the the Braves will have to win, Freehold, give me your take on this. You're a Phillies fan. The Braves are going to have to win the National League East. The Mets aren't giving it away. I mean, the Mets aren't going to lose it. I mean, the Mets are a good, good baseball team with two elite, I mean, I'm talking about super elite pitchers, and Scherzer and DeGrom. So if the Braves catch them, and maybe they do, maybe they don't, they're going to have to play really good baseball. The Mets aren't going to hit one of these elongated slumps and allow the Braves to overtake them. What do you say, Frio, to that statement? The Mets aren't going to lose it. The Braves will have to win it. Yeah, I I think that the Braves are just a little bit more complete than the Mets. Um, I think the Mets are a little bit more top-heavy. They have, uh, you know, Their stars are a little bit more popular. Um, I do hate the Mets more than I hate the Braves. So <laughs> good to know. That, True so that's a good thing. True Phillies. Um, and like I said, so I think the when I look, so I look at pitching, especially when it comes. Sure, to you better, you better. And uh, I think, like we said, the top heavy of the Mets, the superstars versus the solid five for the Braves. I would go Braves. But the Braves spotted them ten and a half games. Yeah, and that's why. I mean, the Braves have played better baseball since June first than anybody in baseball has. Um, but they spotted the Mets ten and a half games, and the Mets are a good team. And you don't, you can spot a. I mean, if somebody's a flash in the pan, I mean, you can spot them ten and a half. But the Mets are a good team, and it's hard to spot a team ten and a half games and run them all the way down. It'll be interesting. But I do believe, and I said this to Rev before the series started. I said, Rev, they've got to at least pick up a game. On when the Mets are playing the Dodgers and the Braves are playing a team thirty-seven games out of five hundred, they've got to at least pick up a game, and they didn't. So the Mets. I mean, you, you're you're not on your head. But yeah. the Mets won the last three days. Um, I would say so. They, the, the the Mets beat the Dodgers two of three. The Braves beat the Rockies two of three. Uh, they both held serve in the last three games, and that's just if you're a Braves fan, they're playing the Dodgers. You're playing it. You got to pick up a game, mm-hmm. and it always goes back to to Freed. And they just didn't seem to be in sync. I don't know. They just didn't seem to be um, there that night. 162 games. You're gonna have a game or two or three or four where you just aren't there that night. But long story short. If the Braves catch the Mets, they're going to have to play 660, 680 baseball because the Mets aren't going to hit a big lull. I mean, they're just not. They're too good uh, to see that or to do that. It's kind of interesting in the um, – I mean, if the Dodgers are the best team in baseball, and as Braves fans, I think we admit that today. The Dodgers are better than anybody right now in baseball. Are the second and third best teams the Mets and Braves? I mean, the Astros are to be considered. I mean, the Yankees are still the Yankees. But I think you could easily argue that two and three are the Braves or the Mets and the Braves. I mean, the, the Mets deserve it right now because they've got the better record. 
Um, I, I just thought about that. There was a, mm-hmm. I'll read these power rankings. CBS Sports has them about once a week on Saturday afternoon normally. And they've had the, the, the Mets three or four. They've had the Braves three or four. Um, they've had the Yankees at number two. And this past Saturday, they dropped the Yankees down to four, had the Mets two and the Braves three. Uh, that's kind of, um, I mean, number one has been number one about all year in these power rankings. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think you could make the argument that the the two team, the two best teams in baseball, not named the L.A. Dodgers, are both in the NL, in the NL East. And I'll say this, not, not to try to blow smoke, the Phillies could be dangerous in a series. In a short series, you can't let your guard down. And I think the Phillies are, what, two games up of the wild card for the last wild card spot? Yeah, they're a half, uh, half game um, uh, better than the uh, Padres. Okay, and a half they have game. Like six games up on – well, there's so there's six games up on the last um, But you got spot. that play-in game. Yeah. You got that yeah. one-game play-in game. Yeah, so that would be that would be the uh, Brewers, that they're six gotcha. games up on that one. So so they're, they're, they're probably going to have a postseason game. I mean, they, you know, the, the odds are pretty good that the Phillies – so you got three teams in one division that will play in the postseason. That's a pretty stout division. And last year – the Braves won it with 87 games. <laughs> you know, things, things change uh, from yes, year to year. 843-661-0937 is our number. Uh, I threatened yesterday to get into some of this um, uh, this data about crime in South Carolina. Uh, I really want to concentrate on that this morning. But I think I'd be remiss in my job uh, if I were not or negligent in my job if I didn't bring up the speech last night that was as insulting to me and I'm not easily insulted, as insulting to me as anybody, uh, as any elected official, especially the president, that I've ever heard give. I mean, I've highlighted a couple of <laughs> He would uh, probably here. say, good, he's glad you're insulted well, I mean, I, because I, I, he apparently hates you. Well, I mean, and here's what, here's what I believe is going on, guys. Let's play a little bit of chess. I know it's early, but let's put our chess hat on right, I'm ready for one this. second. I think that the Democrats have got internal polling that shows them the only person they can beat is Trump. I mean, you're talking about external yeah. polling and public polling. I mean, some of that is for political theater. Um, a lot of somebody asked me yesterday. So why? What would be the advantage of a bogus poll? Because I talked about prior to uh, you know Labor Day is when you really begin to get down to the nitty gritty. Um, the reason you have bogus polls in the summer is to discourage anybody from donating money to Blake Masters, and it worked. I mean, McConnell's apparently bought into that. He's cut about eight million dollars in funding from Oz and Blake Masters. The, the majority of what I call summertime polling, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of inside a campaign for a second. Um, I never trailed in my campaign. I mean, when I won the Republican primary, we didn't poll the primary, uh, but I never trailed in, in, in a poll. But I'm in red state, South Carolina. I mean, it's not Pennsylvania. It's not uh, Ohio. It's not Arizona. I mean, you know, if you win the Republican primary in South Carolina, um, you're going to win unless you just do something unbelievably stupid. And you still probably win, just not by as wide a margin. But when, when you look at the Pennsylvania polling, the Ohio polling, the Arizona polling in particular has been curious to me because Kelly, people are not happy with Kelly, but they're telling me that Blake Masters is 11 points down. No way. There is no way. So the summertime polling, the objective is to convince donors that they're making a bad investment. So you got a CBS poll, you got an NBC poll, you got a, a New York Times poll, you got a Wall Street Journal poll. These are reputable news agencies. I mean, they're propaganda arms, but but as a you know as a nation goes, that would be the mainstream media. That that would not be the extreme elements. We've kind of bought into this narrative that if you want to stream opinion, um, you know, go to Breitbart. 
Go to Zero Hedge. I mean, they'll give you an extreme opinion. I can tell you this as somebody who's done it 10 years. Breitbart and Zero Hedge are more correct or more right more often than the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, or anybody else. But if the Wall Street Journal says Blake Masters is 11 points behind, a certain percentage of the donor class buy into it. So, so the donor class, I mean, they have a lot of money, but they don't have it all. So, let's say, let's say you're, a, you're a wealthy, wealthy business person or you're a political action committee and you've got X number of dollars. It's, it's not infinite. I mean, there's a finite amount of money that you have. You want, to best, um, you want to execute a plan that spends the money in places that you think will bring success. So if you read a Wall Street Journal poll in June that has Blake Masters down 11 points in Arizona, you're, you're going to be questioned about, what, did we send Masters a million dollars? I'm at a political action committee with, with, with nine board members. And they get together and somebody in the room says, why did we send Blake Masters a million dollars for his political action committee or the, the one working along with him when he's 11 points down? And somebody's got to say, hey, man, this is summertime polling. He's not 11 down. Trust me, he's going to be two or three down and it's going to be within the margin of error. And that million dollars may get him over the top. So, so the polling, the intent of the polling, stick with me, the intent of the polling is to convince you that that person doesn't have a chance to win to discourage donors from contributing to those campaigns. If you've got an extra hundred bucks, I mean, if you're not a rich guy, but you're a Republican and you want the Republicans to take control of the Senate and you kind of like these America first candidates and you see a poll that says Masters is 11 down, I mean, that hundred bucks means a lot to you. So if there are 100,000 people in America waiting to send $100, but they read that Blake Masters is 11 down, they go, I'm not spending my money there, man. I'll, try, I'll send it to J.D. Vance. I'm going to send it to J.D. to make sure we don't goof up Ohio. So that's the, um, I mean, that's the chess game being hmm, played right okay. now. But, but, but the reason that, that I believe it's all about MAGA, I mean, they started this a couple of months ago, MAGA, 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 extremism, extremism, extremism. They've got some polling that they will not release to the public, that they trust. They know the New York Times poll is bogus, but, but they play that hand. Um, and we live in this what, liberal media complex that kind of dominates the narrative. But, but they've got some internals, I'm convinced of this, that shows them Trump is the only guy that they can beat in 24. And I'm not saying Trump would lose in 24, but he's the guy that they, they've convinced themselves that we've got to make the 22 about Trump. We've got to make the 24 about Trump. If DeSantis runs, let's say J.D. Vance gets on a rocket ship, like I think he could. I'm not saying he will, but he could. Uh, we don't want to run against those guys. I mean, right track, wrong track. What, what, they're, what they're arguing, Rev, is despite what the right track, wrong track number is, despite what the presidential approval rating, Trump is this anomaly. I mean, n- none, of, none of the typical rules and historical nature of politics matter. I mean, this, this guy is so different, so overwhelming, so dominant. Forget the right track, wrong track. Forget the presidential approval ratings. If we can drag Trump into the fray, He's the story. And nobody disagrees with that. I mean, I'm a Trumpster. I'm a MAGA Republican. I'm an America First Republican, unapologetically. But, but I accept that when he becomes the, um, uh, the theme of the argument, you know, or the storyline, it, it, gets, it gets testy. I mean, it gets real testy. And I'll tell you the argument to play another kind of, kind of fifth dimensional chess. The argument they're going to try and make is, aren't you tired of Donald Trump? I mean, I get it, man. I mean, to the, to the white working class or the blue collar element. I, mean, I get it. I mean, I get he was your guy and you had a run and you scared the daylights out of us. But aren't you tired of this? 
exhaustion, fatigue. I mean, my word was exhaustion yesterday, Rev. Yours was fatigue. And I think they're counting on a certain percentage of Republican voters to say, man, I'm, I'm just tired of this. I, I don't, you know, it, it's been a, it's been a hell of a couple of years or six years, however long it's been, but, but I am ready to get somewhat back to a functioning. Um, in other words, I'm tired of defending Trump or arguing about Trump. That's their strategy. I'm, I'm convinced of this because it was the most insulting speech that an American president has given in my lifetime. I, I didn't listen to presidents uh, before my time. I've gone back and listened to some Reagan speeches. Though you didn't register to vote till I was 40, but it was the most demeaning and insulting speech to fellow Americans that I've ever heard an American president give. From the great uniter. He was going well, to I mean, unite that, the country. That, that was all. Well, We're not red America, well, blue I mean, America. We're the United States of America. And, That's if his what he appro- said. and if his approvals were 60, and 60% of America felt we were on the right track, he probably would be a uniter. <laughs> but he's kind of sort of playing the hand he's dealt. I mean, his numbers are underwater. The right track number's underwater. So it's all about the MAGA extremist to motivate whom? Those who aren't MAGA extremists. Let's go to the phone. Here's Breeze. Morning. Here's your right old on all of that, and Biden's just a useful idiot. But what the godless communist Democrats are doing is really not that sophisticated. I said it before. It's just right off of the communist playbook. And the polls are, they are paying the pollsters to do it wrong. They aren't getting it wrong by accident. They're doing it all on purpose, and it works. Everything they're doing works. And you notice the Republicans have no outrage they may make a comment here or there, but they should be raising immortal hell and pointing out everything that these godless communist Democrats have done to destroy this country, every bit of it. But instead, again, you know what, the 3D chess, they are not, they need to be attacking Biden, even though Biden's not the one doing it. You can blame Biden because, you know, but like I said, Barack's in his dang old boxer shorts underneath the basement running the thing of all the oligarchs. Biden hasn't done none of this. But somebody's getting to with it. I mean, they need to, but, so, but they need to go over there and attack, 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 and attack, and attack some more. They don't have to mention Donald Trump today one time. They just need to attack. They keep attacking them for everything. Call out every bit of their insanity. Call out the, all of the craziness of a guy dressed as a woman being an admiral. I mean, you, I mean, the list, there's so many things there that they can put up every single day to show what kind of damn fools these people are, even though they're doing it all on purpose. I don't even believe they believe half the crazy crap they say. You know, it's just it's just a, it's just a daggone again right out of the Communist Manifesto is exactly what it is. And one thing about the crime situation. You know, again, they're, they're common denominators that anybody will have a break and figure out where the crime is. But another problem you have is if a person is not, the, 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 the violent criminal needs to be afraid of being violent. But that either he needs to know that the police will be on top of him like white on rice, or they need to know that the person he is trying to commit violence against it's not going to stand by and let that happen to them. That they will defend themselves. If people, you know, it's just like when the James guy went up there up north, over there with the cheeseheads, and all those boys that fought the Civil War shot back at them. You know, I mean, you know, the day to know that they'd have fought twice about going up there. You know what I'm saying? Sure so, do. I mean, nobody's somebody. You know, at some point, American citizens 
if you know there can't be but so many cops around, and if, you know, and if you're living in a city that's dominated by one of these defund the police, Antifa, BLM types, that you know, then you might want to consider moving. moving. You know, you might want to consider moving. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that, my man. Eight four three six six one. 0937. I want to stay on Teal for just a second because I think there's a way to tie some of what Breeze said uh, with this article I read, held back yesterday a good bit uh, in the National Review about you know some of the um, some of the senior fellows of the National Review find Blake Masters just simply unacceptable. Take a break. Back in a minute. Freeholder, you don't see these private conversations we're having over here. I mean, are we really are we really coming back under your yeah, terms? You did under, under the original agreement. I mean, the Rev and I have some serious issues <laughs> we're over here, here we're that we're trying to discuss and debate. Things, right? Uh, you didn't hear what I said. I didn't hear what you said. Uh, so I always say, stand by a little, you do? like just to let you know, like twenty seconds before we go on. And when I did it this time, I went, "Wake up, Carolina! This is Mike." <laughs> <laughs> okay, I got you. Yeah, we were in deep conversation there. Yeah. Rev and I are working on something. I'll just leave it, leave it at that. Um, let's go back to some of the um, some of the arguments I tried to make before the break about the reason summertime polling is inaccurate is to discourage anybody from that makes supporting sense. a campaign. I follow what you're saying. Okay, okay, uh, we've from established side of politics. I, okay. I get it. Uh, but but did you did you understand it before I explained it? No. Okay, because you don't pay attention. No. You don't probably no. it's not your job to do that. And I'm just scratching my head as to why are these polls even saying this? Why, why do it they does make sense? Why does a poll say someone is eleven down and all of a sudden a legitimate poll comes out and says they're three down? Right. Well the eleven down poll is bogus. Breeze is right. It's intentional. They know exactly what they're doing. They stack the odds. It's a bogus poll. It's a bullcrap poll. It's not intended to properly or accurately reflect where the race is. Blake Masters is not 11 points down in Arizona. But here's what happens. And here's why people are so suspect to this echo chamber. So Blake Masters wins a Republican primary in one of the four states that most of us believe um, the Republicans have the best chance to flip. I mean, I'm not saying it's likely that Masters beats Kelly, but there's a chance. I mean, it's kind of a swing state. Uh, Masters is a I mean, his entire political campaign is around, I'm the guy whose wife got shot, and I'm an astronaut. Don't ask me anything about politics. I mean, my wife got shot, led to some, you know, kind of a movement on gun control and, and the likes, and, and I, you know, I'm an astronaut. So not many people are astronauts and had a wife get shot. I'm not making light of the wife getting shot, but that was really his impetus for getting into politics. It's a tragedy. It's horrific. I don't care how liberal she is. Nobody deserves to get shot in front of a grocery store meeting constituents. Nobody. I don't care how bat crap crazy you are and, and whatever political belief you may hold. Um, nobody deserves that. But that is kind of sort of what his Senate career is based on. So Blake Masters is a serious guy. He's different. He's very quirky. He's out of the norm, out of the mainstream. So, so the, the, the traditional media, what I'll call the, um, I wrote down this morning, the liberal media complex, I mean, they, they start pitching this narrative that the Democrats chose to not, excuse me, the Republicans chose to nominate an extreme candidate, one of these Peter, Peter Till acolytes, and they'll get exactly what they deserve. So, so the general public says, wow, they, have, they elected this quirky dude. Um, okay, they, they're watching Seinfeld. They're watching football, the Braves and the Phillies and the Yankees and the Mets, and they're going to races, and they're, they're not consumed by what's happening in Arizona, but people who contribute and support are. And you got a poll that says 11. You got another that says 9, another says 10. What is the consensus then? There's no way Blake Masters can win. 
So all of a sudden, the National Review sees an opportunity to lambast the Trump orbit. So they run an article. I mean, one of the most conservative, historically conservative publications in America wrote an article last week. One of their senior fellows, Kevin Williamson, wrote an article, don't reward cowardice with your vote. So I guess that the National Review has concluded they'd rather have an astronaut whose wife got shot, who votes with the Democrats 99% of the time, than they had Blake Masters. I mean, that's quite the calculus, but it really speaks to exactly where we are. And Breeze's point was, why aren't we raising hell? Well, I mean, it's, it's a little deeper than that. I'll tell you what raising hell would sound like if I were leading the Republican Party. Why is Mitch McConnell not in Arizona standing beside Blake Masters saying, I don't care what the polling says. The polling's not accurate. The polling's not reflective of where the race really is. In fact, the polling is trying to discourage me, who am responsible for the Republican Senatorial Committee's funding, fundraising, and contributions. They're trying to convince me to not support Blake Masters because he's a fringe candidate. He's a Republican candidate. The Republican primary voters in Arizona have chosen Blake Masters. If he's their guy, he's my guy. And I'm here standing beside Blake Masters with a $10 million check from the Republican Senatorial Committee because the Republicans are going to do everything they can to win this election. But McConnell doesn't have the guts to do it, nor does he really want that to happen. And here's why he doesn't want it to happen. You ready? Um, Kevin Williams says it better than McConnell could. One of the problems with a weird little gaggle of Peter Thiel cultivated tech bros operating in contemporary Republican politics, Blake Masters prominent among them. Listen to that, guys. I mean, I'm reading more to this in. I'm reading more into this than you probably are. Operating in contemporary Republican politics. You know what contemporary Republican politics is? We call the shots. Blake Masters, if you do what you're told and stop listening to Peter Thiel, okay, maybe we come out. You know, may, maybe we endorse. Coming out in Peter Thiel is a bad thing to say. Um, <laughs> maybe, you know, maybe we support. But th that, that's kind of the point I'm trying to make. Um, instead of the Republicans showing a little courage, they bail. The National Review bails. And this was so, I mean, this is the point, I mean, I actually commented on this under the name Dave Baker because he pays a subscription, uh, or the company does, and I think he gets reimbursed. So, so when I go on my National Review subscription, this I, when I get my premium content, and, and, I, and I very often comment, it's, always, it's kind of fun because I do it under the name Dave Baker. <laughs> so if you are um, a premium uh, member of the National Review, and you see Dave Baker commenting, that's him. I mean, he's the one offering up all these nonsensical ideas. Um, uh, Williamson continues, or uh, Kevin Williams continues, uh, the Peter Thiel cultivated tech bros operating in contemporary Republican politics, Blake Masters prominent among them, is that they are typically pretty smart, real smart, in fact, at least in terms of raw intellectual horsepower. And so they come to believe, mistakenly, that the rules don't apply to them. They think that politics is simple, that it's a kind of algorithm. Uh, I don't disagree with that. I mean, I think some of those guys do get in their own way, believing. I mean, I'll give you an example. I'll talk about somebody who's deceased, James Schofield. The late James Schofield treated politics as if it were an algorithm and everybody's going to always do the right thing. I mean, he kind of, he designed, I mean, his political basis was people are Vulcans. They're always going to do the reasonable, logical thing. No, people are emotional. They're more times than not going to do something based on what their emotions or where their emotions have led them. 
Um, they think politics is simple, that there's some kind of algorithm. Get a couple of smart guys into a room to figure out what the most important variables are. The rubes will salivate like Pavlov's dogs every time you get a hit piece on or hit on um, Fox News. See, to, to me, the only courageous thing for the Republicans to do is send Mitch McConnell. I mean, if the Republicans had the, the courage of a Donald Trump or some of these America firsters, because America first voting is based on what? Give me a fighter. I mean, give me, give me somebody that'll mix it up. Give me somebody that doesn't shy away from the yeah. liberal media um, complex. Back, you better believe it. I mean, give me somebody that'll counterpunch. Blake Masters is out there in Arizona counterpunching. I mean, you got to believe that every state media agency, every newspaper, every website is opposed to his candidacy, and then his friends bail on him. McConnell cuts his funding, and the National Review writes a scathing article. Not, not Vox. Not Atlantic Magazine, not the New York Times, the National Review. Don't let, don't reward cowardice with your vote. Maybe Blake Masters was never pro-life in the first place. So, despite him being an America Firster, despite the majority of Republican primary voters being devout America Firsters, they have found a, a place where Masters has been inconsistent on abortion. He's a tech bro. How many times do you think Blake Masters has seriously thought about abortion? I mean, it's important. There's no doubt about it. But he says he's evolved on the issue of abortion. He's not always been as pro-life as he is. Is he playing a political hand? I'm sure he is. Of course he is. I mean, he's got somebody giving him advice and telling him what the polling number says. But he's with us on about every other issue under the sun. I don't know that he's with the Republican hierarchy because he's anti-globalist. He's anti-intervention. He's anti-trade um, deals that have treated the American workers so disparagingly. And he's anti-China. That's kind of where the party is, except it's leadership. McConnell is not an anti-globalist. It's not about abortion. It's never been about abortion. They're trying to find a reason to stop these guys from winning. And this, this is the travesty in all of this. I'm convinced that Mitch McConnell would rather be minority leader than get voted out as majority leader. He believes that his best chances, you want to talk about putting self over service? Mitch McConnell believes that he has a better chance of remaining minority leader than he would if the Republicans got the majority and had to vote for who the majority leader is. It's all about Mitch. It's always been about Mitch. It's not about the Republican brand. It's not about sincere effort to understand America first. This is all about the, the, the Republican hierarchy who has controlled the party for about a generation and a half, maybe two generations, just refusing to accept where its voters are. Mitch McConnell is not a Republican from a swing state. I mean, I think Kentucky's got a Democrat governor, but, and that's a little bit, I mean, state elections are different than national elections. Most voters understand I'm not sending that guy to go to Washington to do my business, and I'm sending him to Lexington to do the job. And, and I just think when, when I read this article, and I kept it all week, the National Review, one of the most conservative publications of intellectual, modern or modern intellectual conservatism in my lifetime, has decided that the astronaut with a wife who got shot, who votes Democrat 99% of the time, is better than one of Peter Thiel's tech bros who's anti-globalist, anti-China, anti-intervention, uh, which is where America First, I mean, that's kind of the reason America First has gained so much traction uh, in Republican lore. 843-661-0937. Let's take a break. We'll be back. In just a minute. 843-661-0937. I was thinking about this last night, watching a little bit of the Braves, West Virginia, Pittsburgh on 
television. I'll tell you, man, with the fans at Pittsburgh were standing and doing all this thing, every every team in America has this pregame ritual, mm-hmm. and you believe yours is the best there's ever been. Yep. I mean, you can't convince me that 2001 in Sandstorm isn't the greatest entrance it, in the history. It just history so of, happens that ours is the best. But, but I mean, running okay. down the hill, I mean, if you ask a Clemson fan, I mean, if you ask Ohio, dotted the yeah, Ohio yeah, State. That's okay. That's well, I, mean, okay I, I get it. I mean, all of those things are um, personal, you know, and, yep. and very uh, specific to that particular program. But I'll tell you, when I watched the Pitt fans last night, I got chills. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's on. It's the beginning of college football. Uh, tomorrow, I'll be in Columbia. Many of my uh, fellow South Carolinians will be in Columbia. Uh, many of my Clemson brethren are making their way to Atlanta uh, for a Monday night affair between the Tigers and Georgia Tech. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, to me, this is this is living proof. I mean, college football is an atheist's worst nightmare. I mean, I, if, if you're an atheist, I mean, okay, you see a baby born. You know what I mean? Uh, okay, I'm not impressed. You know, well, that, right. that, that, that's a that's a that's a baby that came out of a female's body that is living and breathing and will develop if if not harmed or hurt into a an independent person. That's not a miracle. I'm not impressed. Okay, well, let me let me carry you to, to Death Valley of Williams Bryce or between the hedges, you know, or somewhere like that. Now you the swamp. Right. Let me carry you to the swamp on a Saturday afternoon, and then you tell me. That, that birth of the baby didn't impress you? Let me carry you to one of these SEC football games, and you'll leave there saying, uh, okay, I have been saved. I have seen the light. I'm no longer someone who's skeptical of a God in heaven. Something had to make this much more powerful and superior than mere mortals. Let's go to the phone. Uh, looks like the call dropped. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. 843-661. Mike, we... just, Mike just sent me a message that he's had three drop calls in a row, so he's wondering if something's up with the phone. Well, I mean, I would say something is up with the phone. Yeah. I just read a second ago. I mean, that radio brilliance doesn't require, I mean, it doesn't deserve a response. <laughs> really? I mean, I'm sitting here lecturing to the masses about why they're bogus polling and what they're trying to do and convince you of this and, and that and the other. Now, now, understand, I'm perfectly comfortable talking to myself for four hours, if that's what is required and we're having an issue with um with the phones, but yeah, we've had a, I've noticed phone called. Uh, there's another one ringing in that we'll have to see whether it works or not. Eight four three. Sometimes it is six six one. The other end, obviously, somebody's calling from an area where their calls are not making it all the way yeah, through. So I, I would imagine um there's three in a row. Yeah. Uh, another four, one just dropped. Four in a row. <laughs> so we'll see. We'll see. We're having time to reboot. Or not. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. That one was me calling. Okay, you're calling in to, okay. to check the system out. 843-661-0937. Real quick, got a couple of minutes before a hard break, top of the hour. Um, clinging to their guns and religion. Basket of deplorables. Greatest threat to democracy. You know what those three things have in common? The extremist Donald Trump said none. Right. Trump Barack, never said. Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, and Joe Biden. There you go. The three most recent Democrat presidential candidates basically said to half the country, clinging to your guns and religion, a basket of deplorables, and the latest hit from the um, the hit makers that just keep making hits is the greatest threat to democracy. Um, how can that be? I mean, it, it, the speech last night given by President Biden was not intended to do anything but echo and reverberate throughout the liberal media complex. But I mean, they knew exactly what the liberal media complex. Now, the, the one exception, or, or the, I've, I've read some places where liberals took exception with the Marines kind of standing in the backdrop. I mean, it, it's kind of a hellish looking backdrop. I mean, it's red. I mean, I don't know what hell looks like. No one ever know what hell looks like. But that's kind of what I envision. Mm-hmm. You know, um, uh, embers, you know, just kind of um, in, in a constant state of um, 
just red hotness, so to speak. And it looked like that. But in the back, it's kind of a shadowy. You see the silhouettes of fellow Marines. And I've just always felt that in situations, addresses to the nation, the Marines should be apolitical. The American military should be apolitical. I have no problem when you're celebrating Memorial Day. I have no problem when a when a president gets off the helicopter at Camp David. You know, Marines yeah. or Army men yeah. standing guard. Or I mean, giving I, a military sure. speech, I mean, no, right? No, quite, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, any address to the nation um, about celebrating our history and our freedom. But, I mean, last night, this was a, I mean, he labeled the speech a, um, a speech to the soul of America. I mean, it, a little bit of gun control. But it was it was it was basically to chastise fifty percent of Americans for being extremist, and you know the black lesbian uh, press secretary said that if you are not in the mainstream, excuse me, if you're not agreeing with the majority of Americans, then you're extreme. I mean, if that's America today, guys, we're toast. I mean, if America's morphed into a place where any opinion you hold out of uh, the majority, in other words, if the majority of Americans believe that abortion should be legal in the third trimester, and you believe something different, then you're not out of the mainstream. You're extreme. I mean, there's a word association here: extreme denier. Uh, you know, um, instead of a, a skeptic, instead of someone who's a little bit um less inclined to go along and get along. But yeah, I wrote those down this morning. And what they really mean is if you don't agree with them and their vision for America. Well, I mean, right? they, they know that they have an opportunity here with the liberal media complex for this message to reverberate and make the midterms about the MAGA extremist. And, and some people will believe this, Reb, because they're, they're, they're drinking a latte, they're watching CNN, uh, they're not eating beef, and then they'll kind of drink this. I mean, they'll drink this Kool-Aid, they'll consume the storyline or this narrative and uh, it convinced me last night that the the entire intent is they believe Trump is the only Republican they can beat in 2024. Take a break. Back in a minute. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. 843-661-0937 is our number. Uh, what is the advertisement? We talked a little bit about it yesterday. I don't usually drink beer, but when I do, it's just like he's, mm-hmm. I don't usually make mistakes, but when I do, I take responsibility of those mistakes. It's I don't always drink beer. I don't always yeah. drink beer, but when I do, it's always Dos Equis. Okay, we got it right now. I don't always drink beer, but when I do, it's always, playing the words, they're kind of always, I always drink Dos Equis. Okay, um, I don't always get things right, but I always try to make them right <laughs> after I realize how wrong uh, I was. So, <laughs> something like that. Uh, um, you lost me. Well, I mean... <laughs> So, so but you still of, are the most well, I mean, interesting man in America. No, I, by, by far. I'm, I can assure you of that. Um, the most interesting man sitting behind this microphone. <laughs> I, I'll accept that okay. privilege. So a couple of days ago, we began discussing crime. And we talked about some of the um, some of the problems of our local community. I can't speak to Sumter and Orangeburg. Uh, if someone wants to call in and suggest that there's more of a crime problem there than there is here. Um, our good caller and good friend Jim called in and said, that's just not right. I mean, statistically, when I was a kid, I think I made the remark, when I was a kid, things like this didn't happen. Well, they did happen. They just weren't reported on Facebook and Twitter and, you know, Instagram and TikTok and any other social media apparatus. 24-7 news was not, many people consumed by the, um, I don't know, Rev, the inundation of, you know, some, whether the content is newsworthy or not, it's content. And it's still, you know, in your face 24 mm-hmm. yeah, uh, back 7. Then, I mean, think of the world back then. You had television news. You had some radio news. You had newspaper. Was there any other way to get and it? That was it. And I guess the um, if crimes were being committed, 
they weren't reported in real time. There was not somebody tweeting about it or, or Facebook posting about it and um, been causing people to kind of freak out and believe there's a bigger problem than there really is. And here's what I've drawn. Um, I went back and looked a couple of days ago at the South Carolina Population and Rate of Crime Report. This is kind of a, um, it's a joint project between SLED and the FBI. And we can question how they report crimes. Are they all reported? I mean, there's, there's no exact science here. I mean, there's the best we can do. And the best that I could find is a South Carolina population rate of crime. Why does the population matter to me? Because I wanted the crime rate based on a population of 100,000 people. You can actually punch in the number 100,000. You punch in 10,000, but 100,000. In 1990, South Carolina only had about 3.4 million people. So 32 years, I mean, we've grown exponentially. We're at about 5.3 million today, a little better than 5.2 million. Um, they quit keeping stats in 2019. Uh, they didn't stop keeping stats. They re-aggregated the stats. They, they changed the methodology of reporting. So, so the, 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 the most recent year I have to contrast 1980 is 2019. So in 1980, Stick with me for a second. In 19, excuse me, in 1990, let's use 90 as an example. Let's not even go all the way back to 80. Let's go in 90. In 1990, with 3.486 million people in South Carolina, there were 11.2 murders per 100,000 people. There were 53.7 rapes per 100,000 people. Fast forward to 2000. In 2000, the murder rate went from 11.2 per 100,000 to 5.8 per 100,000. So basically cut in half. I mean, the murder rate was cut in half from 1990 to 2000. The rape went from 53.7 to 37.7. In 2010, the number went from 5.8 murder to 5.7 in murder. Uh, the rape went down from 37 to 33. So we've seen a significant decline in violent crimes. And once again, there, there are other violent crimes, obviously, um, property crimes, but I looked at rape and, and murder. I mean, that, those are two. Nobody can question what the motivation is there, right? I mean, a murder, a homicide, whether it's reckless, careless, negligent, or intentional first-degree murder, I mean, somebody dies in that event. I mean, that is a very violent act. One person commits toward another. Rape would be the very same sort of, of violent act. I mean, that, that's kind of a vile, uh, wow, they got raped. Wow, his brother got murdered. Uh, it's a little bit different than property crimes, however violent they may be. Breaking your home in the middle of the night scares the crap out of you, but nobody died. Nobody got raped. Um, and then we go to 2010, uh, excuse me, 2019, which is the last number they kept these uh, these records. The, um, the murder rate had gone back to nine, and the rape had gone back to 52.1. So we, I mean, just kind of do a bell curve here. So in, in 80, excuse me, in 90, you've got, 11.2 murders per 100,000 people. In 2000, it's all the way down to 5.8 murders per 100,000 people. So we cut the crime in half. It stayed that way to 2010. And then in 2018 or 19, the numbers begin climbing again, not back to 11.2, but all the way back to 9.1. So we've had a pretty significant decrease following or followed by a pretty significant increase in violent crime, rape, murder being the two I'm focusing on. So why? I mean, were people bad, turned good, then went bad again? I mean, that, that would be an argument to make. For some reason, um, you know, people found Jesus. People, you know, uh, began praying more, went to church more, found some spiritual foundation more. Um, no, it's policy. 
I mean, it's truly government policy. That's the point Jim tried to make uh, as he called in a couple of days ago, and he's right. And I went back and looked at some of the, um, I mean, I didn't do any charting or graphing, but I took that information and I correlated it with the 1994 Violent Crime Control Act, the one that Biden voted for, advocated for, was a strong and stern supporter of, but denied any, any responsibility, you know, it could be considered racist. It incarcerated a lot of African-Americans, a lot of minorities. Um, it kept people in jail too long, we were told. Uh, you know, nonviolent offenders were incarcerated for too long a period of time. But the 1994 Violent Crime Control Act did exactly what it was supposed to do. It controlled and declined the number of violent crimes committed. I mean, I don't know what happened in Utah. I don't have any idea what happened in New York. But in South Carolina, per 100,000 people, significant decline, stayed there, stayed there, stayed there. And then in 2010, we changed some laws, and it was actually the Obama Fair Sentencing Act of 2010 that said we can't keep these people locked up forever. We just can't. Now, I'm not defending, because remember Mike called about somebody gets caught with a bag of weed. They end up in jail. You get caught with your third bag of weed, three strikes and you're out. But they're all like, they're, they're all kind of ancillaries here. But I've, I've determined through my unofficial research, that the 1994 crime, the Violent Crime Control Act, and then um, the 1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act, and the 2010 Fair Sentencing Act are three of the major contributors to why we have gotten where we are. Now, some would say um, it's better than it was. Some would say it's not as good as it was. When you have a drive-by shooting once a weekend in your community, when someone dies and, and then another person dies as a result of a violent crime, you begin scratching your head saying, what's going on here? Well, here's what I've concluded. Um, we built 32% more square feet of prisons. Excuse me. We have 32% more prisoners um, after we passed the 1994 Violent Crime Control Act. R remember we talked about sentencing leniency. Uh, we got too many people in prison. Too many people are incarcerated in America today. Um, in 1998, four years after the Violent Crime Control Act became law of the land, um, in 1998, 82% of prisoners were held without bail if the prosecution was requesting it. Today, that number's 42%. Now, I'm not a lawyer. I don't understand how the judiciary works. I don't understand what sort of process it goes to if, if, if you're committed, or excuse me, accused of um, committing a, um, a federal crime. But in 82, in, in all the cases in which the U.S. sought to have a defendant held without bail, the bail was denied. Today, that number is around 50%. I've seen it 42%. I've seen it 56%. So let's, for argument's sake, say it's around 50% when it was. And I only saw one number prior to that. That's 82, excuse me, the 82% that was in 1998. What that number is today, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 50%. It may be 54, it may be 48, but it's somewhere in the neighborhood of, um, so we can say without question that the 1994 Violent Crime Control Act made communities safer, period. Did it incarcerate too many people? Don't know. We have 32% more prisoners. 82% of the people who wanted bond or the government said doesn't deserve bond didn't get bond. What well, we know that the 2010 Fair Sentencing Act changed that. Here's some of the nuances, or here's one of the nuances that jumped out to me. Because a lot of the talk was discriminatory. 
I mean, it's socioeconomically unfair. It's it's, it's uh, racially discriminatory. I mean, that's some of the debate the Obama administration had when A.G. Eric Holder, African-American president, African-American A.G. Um, there's some motivation. There's some impetus there. Uh, you get it. I mean, I get it. I understand that. If you got an African-American A.G. and an African-American president and you believe the Af- African-Americans have been disproportionately punished, you're going to take advantage of that opportunity. I understand that. I think you're politically naive to not believe that's just the nature of the beast. We're all uh, we're all a little bit, um, I just said the word, we're all a little bit inclined to, it's not nepotism, but, but it would be favoritism, right? I mean, we, we silo ourselves. Yeah. We've kind of agreed with that uh, over the air. But, um, but here's something interesting to me. So the 1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act, that would have been the Reagan administration. Just say no, is what Nancy said. Remember? Just as easy as that. Mm-hmm. Just say no. Um, and that was kind of a play off the Nike. Just do it. Remember the Nike ad? Mm-hmm. They hired the same company that did the just do it ad for Nike. Okay. And just say no. I mean, if Nike can just do it, then yeah. of course you could just say no. And then we had this d- debate about addiction and depression, mental illness, and, and all these other sorts of um, intangibles. That, that, you know, some of us understand more than others, but none of us know it all and, and have ironclad beliefs about any of this. But if you had five grams of crack cocaine after the 1988, 1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act became law of the land, if you had five grams of crack cocaine, you get a five-year mandatory sentence. But to get that five-year mandatory sentence with powder cocaine, you'd have 500 grams. I mean, that smells to me. But I mean, that sounds to me like there were certain political influences in play there. The socioeconomically advantaged would probably use powder cocaine than crack cocaine. Crack cocaine is a lot cheaper, a lot more dangerous, but a lot cheaper. I don't know if it's less addictive, more addictive. Never stored a cocaine in my life. I confessed yesterday to my Baptist friends, I smoked a little weed in my day. Drunk some alcohol, smoked a little bit of weed, have never, ever delved into that world and I'm thankful because I don't know how. Would it, I mean, I've got a kind of a uh, compulsive, obsessive personality. And if I'd snorted that crap up my nose, there's no telling where I'd be um, today. So I thank God in heaven as a young, dumb person, you know, for some reason, not doing that. Um, got a few people that have crossed paths in my life. Good friends of mine that have kind of gone down that road and it ain't been pretty. It ain't been pretty at all. They've, they've struggled to keep their life between the ditches, so to speak. I'm um, good people, real good people just made that mistake that led to their eventual demise. But um, so, Rev, the Fair Sentencing Act, they changed the proportion. They changed the numeric. They went from five grams of crack cocaine equals 500 grams of powder cocaine to 100 grams of powder equaling 18 grams of crack. Now, I don't know what the effect of 18 grams of cocaine is compared to 100 grams but, but it, you, you got to believe that it's more fair to people who are socio, socioeconomically disadvantaged. I mean, if you're a drug addict, you got a lot of money. I mean, if you're a trust fund baby and you got hooked on cocaine and daddy left you $100 million, I mean, you can snort all the powder you want. Doesn't matter. I mean, crack's not on your radar. But if you're an addict, doesn't have a job, don't have any money, you're struggling, you can't get out of your own way, you're committing petty crimes, you're in and out of jail, um, you got to get your fix, that crack cocaine is going to be what you want. So, so here's the question I would ask. It looks to me that there's a correlation between drug use and violent crimes. I mean, I, I don't know about addiction. I don't know about homelessness. I don't know about um, despair and, and, um, and depression. 
I mean, I think those are real, but I don't know how much they contribute to crime. We know. We know that drugs contribute to crime. I mean, law enforcement has told me on the record and off the record that if we could get the drugs off the street, they believe crime would decline by two-thirds of of what it is today. Um, Now, how do we get drugs off the street? Here's the question that I think is so interesting. Um, Should we build as many prisoners, excuse me, as many prisons as it takes to accommodate whatever prisoners need to be in there? But the better question is who needs to be in there? How long does a drug addict who breaks our drug laws need to be incarcerated, right? Now, now I had lunch yesterday with a fellow member of the House of Representatives. He'll be here this morning. He believes, and I wanted him to say this because he said it better than I can, he believes that drugs, including guns, is a different animal. I mean, if there is a line, I mean, it's hard to find an exact line of demarcation. But if you're a drug user and you're using Uh, enough drugs to to kill yourself in a week's time, is that a violent crime? I mean, you're killing yourself, so it's just almost like you're, uh, it's violent against you, but you're the victim, you're funding the the addiction, Uh, is that your business? I mean, the the libertarian would say, as long as he's not hurting anybody, I mean, let him buy all the cocaine he wants to buy. Let him, you know, blow his head to smithereens. I mean, that's kind of the, um, that's kind of the personal liberty freedom dilemma here. But, But at what point in time does do drugs become violent crimes? I mean, is it 100 grams of cocaine? Is it 500 pounds of cocaine? I mean, is it Pablo Escobar? I mean, with Escobar, there were machine guns and cartels and, and all these other sorts of things. And that is a very curious point in American politics today. Who should and who should not be in jail? I don't think any of us believe somebody with a bag of weed. Let's say you get caught with a bag of weed one time and they slap you on the wrist. The second time you get caught, they put you in jail for 30 days. There's three strikes and you're out. The third time you get caught with a bag of weed, you go to jail for 20 years. Could you get caught with enough bags of weed? In other words, one bag of weed. What if you got caught with your, with one bag of weed for your 25th time? You're a 25-time offender of having a single bag of weed. Does that deserve incarceration? Now, if you're caught with 25,000 pounds of marijuana or cocaine, of course. You're a dealer. You're a smuggler. You're a dealer. I mean, you're, you're intent to distribute. I mean, that's a different animal. But I was thinking about this last night. If if um, if um John Smith, who lives on Oak Street, gets caught in 1989 with a bag of weed, gets caught again in 90, twice in 92, three times in 93, seven times in 94 through 98, at what point does that guy lose his freedom? You know what I've concluded? Never. Never. Now, if he's get caught with with a hundred bag of weeds, you know he's selling to kids on the street corner. That there's this ambiguity there. That there's this inexactness there. There's this. What do we do now? There. And and I think fundamentally, when you look at violent crime, you look at the drug situation in America today. They are correlated. I mean, there, there's no denying that. I mean, there, there's no denying that drug use leads to criminal behavior. Does it lead to violent crimes at times when you have gang warfare and fighting over drug territory? Um, you've you've heard it about inner cities. Uh, we sell the dope in this part of the city. You don't. And if you come back over here and try to sell your dope in a place that we sell dope, somebody's going to get hurt. And we have shootings and killings. And I mean, a lot of the people believe in, in Chicago, that's primarily what it's about. You know, um, this gang sells drugs in this area. And the other gang tries to kind of intrude on their turf. On their turf. Yeah, turf wars. There you go. But it's not about, hey, we get to, um, you know, we get to clean the windshields on this street corner. 
It's about drug trafficking and drug trading. And we know that drugs eventually lead to violent crimes. But how do we navigate those complex? I mean, it's a, it's a cultural issue. It's a societal issue. And it's also a legal issue. And, and I was thinking about it last night. You know, I don't know the answer. I think it's a very worthwhile debate to have. But there is no doubt that our good friend Jim was right when he said the 94 Violent Crime Control Act controlled crime. I mean, the numbers are indisputable. I mean, we went from, once again, um, 11.2 murders before that legislation got passed all the way down to 5.7. We averaged, well, I'll give you these numbers, 5.8, um, 6.1, 5.7, 6.2, 7.0, 5.4, You see where I'm headed? I mean, during that period of time that the, the, the 94 Crime Control Act bill was the dominant legislation, and then we started tickering with it. In 2010, in particular, with the Sentencing uh, Act, and, and you know, I, I think I've convinced you now that uh, if something's called the Sentencing Act of 2010, there's a lot more in that legislation than simply, you know, how do we sentence and sentence leniency or not. And I think there were some things that were unfair. I mean, I, you know, I'm I'm not an addict. I don't have any idea uh, the the car how much crack equals how much powder. I mean, I couldn't begin to answer that question. Uh, it's unfortunate that some people can, because I wish they never get themselves in that position, but we went from five grams of crack equaling 500 grams of powder to 100 grams of powder equaling 18 grams of crack. And that was because people socioeconomically challenged were serving far longer sentences than people who weren't. And that is discriminatory. I mean, that is the legal system taking advantage of someone's personal plight in life. Take a break. Back in a minute. Takes Mondays to make Fridays, 843-661-0937. The, the members of the delegation will be here at 8 o'clock, and we'll try to discuss some of the crime legislation. Um, once again, I, I ate lunch yesterday with one and expressed, I mean, he's a lawyer, so he understands the legalities of what they can and cannot do. But many people in this community uh, want law enforcement and our elected officials to be a little more aggressive and proactive in addressing some of the criminal element. We'll have that conversation here in about 30 minutes or so. Right now, we have with us Fox News Radio's Ryan Schmelz. Ryan, good morning. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. In our nation's capital, the White House is now, I guess, encouraging the public to combine the current. I want to make sure I get this straight because I get real confused about boosters and vaccines and you know who's been affected and herd immunity and all these other sorts of things we've heard. Of. But this is the first I've heard that they're asking the public to combine the current COVID booster with the flu shot. Am I right? Am I understanding or interpreting that correctly? Well, what they're trying to do is that they want to turn the COVID booster uh, shot into a routine like getting the flu shot. And so they're partnering with and kind of working with a bunch of local health districts as well as uh, pharmacies, as well as healthcare providers to send text messages, uh, encouraging people to get their booster shot and as well as uh, working with community groups to encourage the public to get the booster. So this is a PR campaign based on a scientific analysis or just that they, they kind of want everybody to get the flu shot and the, and the COVID booster. That's where I've been, I've been genuinely concerned about. I mean, there, there's a lot of scientific data now that contradicts what we were told for about a year and a half. Are they accepting that as scientific realities or is this kind of continuing, you know, everybody needs to be vaccinated, everybody needs to get the booster, and now everybody needs to get the, the flu shot? Well, what they're, they're wanting... They're, they're kind of concerned about uh, a, a, a potential really bad flu season as well as maybe another sp- a COVID spread 
that could be happening, you know, in the in the fall and winter months, especially as we get into flu season. So they're trying to get people to get it all by act by like uh, end of October is kind of the the timeline they set. Uh, and you know, it comes at a time when you know you're seeing a lot of health uh, healthcare facilities kind of tested in terms of like you know nursing shortages, staffing shortages, uh, that kind of kind of issues. So that, that's kind of what they're pushing is to get get people to get that shot, you know, by the time flu season or or uh, potentially another Omicron spread happens. Ryan, have they accepted? I mean, is the White House or the 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 CDC or NIHs have they have they accepted that some of the data is now questionable and in dispute? And have they calibrated or adjusted any of? Um, the, the the data suggests that there were things done that we probably should have done differently. Are they are they calibrating or adjusting the strategy based on um, these new findings about the data that we based all the previous strategies on? Uh, it's a little hard to answer that question, but I would say that, you know, they're going to have to deal with some vaccine hesitancy out there because, uh, while the majority of the American public has gotten the initial vaccine, right now you're looking at uh, less than half of eligible people getting that one of the one of the booster shots. So, it, right now the the odds are kind of against them in terms of getting getting a significant amount of the population to get some type of booster shot uh, when we get into you know September as well as into October. Uh, and they've purchased a significant amount of uh, doses of both of these shots from Pfizer and Moderna, over hundreds of millions of them. And the booster is to be treated annually like the flu shot? Is that kind of where you think we're headed? Last question. That That's what that's what it looks like, kind of making it a routine thing. You, know, you go in and you get your flu shot every year, go ahead and get your booster every year is kind of what this strategy looks like right now. Um, Very well explained. Thank you, Ryan. Appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, there's a guy that didn't really want to talk to me. I mean, you, you could you could sense yeah. uh, that that little bit of um, animus or not animus. That's unfair. Uh, the little bit of uh, what, what am I trying to say? Frustration. Frustration would be a better word. <laughs> so here's a guy in South Carolina hosting a conservative radio show uh, trying to challenge some of the data. No, I mean, the data is what the data is. And it's pretty clear now that the data was terribly misleading. Here's the only question. Was it intentional? I mean, that, that is fundamentally what we need to know and deserve to know. Were we inti- we were misled. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And I think it's corrupted the healthcare profession in a way that it never has been before. Uh, I've got a story here about the, um, the diversity, exclu- inclusion, equity. The DEI is not Dale Earnhardt Incorporated. Diversity, <laughs> uh, in, diversity equity, equity, and inclusion. inclusion. Um, and, and they're trying to, you know, they're, they're basically infiltrated the hospital's for, for students that want to be accepted in med school or not, wanted to find out how committed they are to some of these uh, prerequisites. Doesn't matter whether you're going to be a good doctor or not, just are you committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion? If you are, we'll get you in med school some way, somehow. Uh, but I made really good on the, um, well, what's the, uh, there, there's a test you take to see if you could get accepted. Yeah, there, there you go. Um, didn't take that when I was in my summer to semester. Yeah. That's one of the things I didn't do in a summer to semester. Uh, in higher education. Let's go to the phone. Someone there? It's uh, Boudreaux in Orangeburg. Hello, Boudreaux. Good morning. Well, that was quick. You caught me with a mouthful of breakfast. Uh, did I just hear Ken did I just hear Ken say, was it on purpose? Does Breeze not call y'all still? Everything is on purpose. It's all about being manipulated. Hell, I got manipulated. I took the Fauci out myself. 
I finally broke down and did it. Not because I, not because I thought there was any benefit to it. I took it for two reasons. I took it because I was supposed to go on a cruise ship in January, and uh, my the company I well the insurance company. Well, no, I guess it's the company I work for. Uh, they won't match your health savings account, deduct, you know, uh, contribution unless you're vaccinated. So I was leaving a thousand dollars a year on the table, you know. And uh, I guess I finally got to the point where I thought, well, you know, I'm a hundred percent sure this is not going to benefit me, and I'm only about eight percent sure it's going to kill me. And uh, well, not kill me, but you understand it. It would be a uh, a negative, um, you know, benefit or whatever. But, uh, but yeah, so I went ahead and did it. But not again, not because I believe in it. I had a couple other ulterior motives for taking it. But was it on purpose? You need to call Breeze. He'll get you straight on whether it's on purpose. Breeze needs to write a book called On Purpose by Breeze. <laughs> Thank you, Boudreaux. <laughs> Appreciate that. Well, I mean, you know, the point I'm, I'm saying that and in, in trying to provoke a response, but obviously I think it was done on purpose, but I can't prove that. I mean, I don't have, uh, there's some emails out there floating around in the ether that suggest that they talked to one another about shutting down anybody that had a, uh, a counter narrative. But um, I mean, there's certain things we know to be true. The data clearly shows the vaccine was nowhere near as effective and durable as we were told it was. I mean, that, you, that's indisputable. I mean, nobody can dispute that data. We can argue whether it was intentional or not. I mean, personally, I think it was. I think anytime you give a liberal Democrat a chance to gain more control over any facet of your life, they'll take you up on it. And I think Fauci's a liberal Democrat. Biden's a liberal Democrat. Trump blinked. I mean, let's let's admit, you know, let's be honest with one another. Uh, For once in Trump's administration, he was not the alpha. I mean, he turned into somewhat of a, um, I don't want to say afraid or, but, but I mean, you get it. I mean, there are a lot of unknowns then. But, but what we know now and, and what we believe now are two separate things. We know the vaccine was not as effective and durable as they told us it was. And they told us with a degree of self, self-assuredness. We don't know whether they intentionally misled or not. I believe exactly what Breeze and Boudreaux believe, but I can't prove that. Take a break. Back in just a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. It's our time of the week. Uh, this Friday and next Friday are our last two honor a vet. Uh, am I right? I want to call them the episodes. What is it, Ray? What do we call these segments? Yeah, the feature segments. segments of our features of our show. There you go. always have the right word uh, <laughs> when I look your way. So Eddie Young's a friend of mine. Eddie nominated a guy named Danny Hill. Danny is 12 years in the United States Marine Corps, three tours in Iraq. Wow. Three tours in Iraq tell me a lot about the um, the dedication and the um, the loyalty that he had as a member of the United States Marine Corps. He now works as um vehicle operations manager at Mannheim uh, in Darlington. I would imagine these folks are busy around um, race weekend. Danny, good morning. How are you? Good morning. So, good morning. so I'm going to ask you this question more diplomatically. Let's make sure we're on the radio now. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, yes, sir. Mics are on. You, you got a redneck from Pamplico and a guy who served three tours in Iraq. So we, Rev's the most nervous man in, in the studio right now. Um, what, what about, I mean, obviously 12 years in the Marine Corps speaks for itself, but three tours in Iraq is a little bit different. Why three tours in Iraq? Uh, you know, just when you when you finally get out of schooling and things like that, and you you hit the fleet. Um, I knew obviously when I joined in two thousand four that there was a little 
skirmish going on in the Middle East, and so uh, I knew what was about to happen, but uh, I spent about a year in school and uh, three tours in Iraq. At the time, you know, every day was pretty painful, but when I look back on it now, it was kind of an interesting experience. met a lot of interesting folks and did a lot of interesting things, but um, I, I will tell you, after three tours, I was pretty smoke-checked, so um, I, uh, I requested orders and got sent to the East Coast, so um, it just... You know, it was a good experience. I had a good time, but like I said, every day was painful. But uh, so, so let's go back a half step. What made you decide uh, the military was the, the the course you wanted to take? Um, I grew up. My father was uh, worked really hard. You know, taught me work ethic and things of that. And um, you know, I moved out of the house at a young age with my my brother and a, uh, a high school buddy. You know, three young guys in an apartment. You can imagine what's going on there. And so. Uh, basically, my life fell apart, and uh, my girlfriend, now wife, uh, was kind of driving me around, and I just felt like a total loser. So uh, the the only option I could think of was I'll just do what my dad did, and I'll join the Marine Corps. So he was in the air wing, too, so I just did a little program called Follow, Follow in Your Father's Footsteps, and so I, I went into the air wing as well. And so 12 years, well, 16 years later, I guess now here I am sitting in front of you. What made you a better person, Danny? I mean, what about being, what about that service? I mean, you talked about getting smoke checked and all these other sorts of things. It ain't the typical life. I mean, I've never been in the service. I certainly respect those that have, um, but it takes a different sort of mindset to deal with that. What what, what about that made you better and, and made you a better person that, that you are today? Yeah, good question, man. Um, just, just from day one, when you step on the uh, illustrious yellow footprints when you hit mcrd marine corps recruit depot uh it's it's uh, it's non-stop it's three months of uh breaking you down and building you back up and you don't realize it uh i was 20 years old at the time and and they really break you down and they um uh, you know efficiently make you feel like you're nothing on purpose and build you back up and then that's what creates teamwork uh that's what that's what creates the resiliency or the work ethic and things of that. And then, then most of all, just the camaraderie, like that person, that guy or gal next to your left or right is willing to whatever job you do is willing to like jump on a grenade for you. And like, you don't, you don't get that in the civilian world so much. Like, you know, Eddie Young sitting right next to me here, like took time out of his day <clears throat> to nominate me for this. And I thank him, but there's things and guys like him. And it's just, when you try and explain that you've been in the military, people get it, but you don't always get it. Like, but you're saying basically teamwork. I mean, it taught you the ability to be a part of a team. Yes, sir. The, the, the overall vision. I mean, that's what Eddie said to me about it. When Eddie nominated you, he said, hey, man, this guy is a the consummate team player. It's all about the team. Um, we, we lack that in American culture. It's a very individualistic society. It's almost like we need to send more of these young people to, to the armed services to convince them that it ain't all about you, man. It's all about a lot of other people, including yourself. Right. Doing something a little bit greater than yourself, you know, be, being there for the greater good or something, actually feeling like you're making a huge difference in this world, no matter you're flipping pancakes at the chow hall or scrubbing crappers, you know, uh, they teach you that on day one too, how to clean, how to clean the toilets real well. So, uh, <laughs> They, uh, they, that's what, that's, that's just what it's about. The camaraderie, the teamwork, communication, and just, just building teams and training, coaching and mentoring young fellas and gals. And so last question, if someone is young and, and confused about what they want to do, they're not sure whether they should go to college, go to work, go, go to the military. Um, what about the military should be appealing to someone? Uh, because the media is trying to portray it as something other than what I genuinely believe it is. It's almost like the people that go to the military couldn't find anything else to do. I don't buy that. For a second, I think that's 
Uh, I think that's the, the ultimate insult it to people. A, yeah, it's a cop in, in the arm. But, but if, you, if somebody is young in their life and they're just, I mean, this ain't unusual, man. A lot of young people don't know what they want to do. Why should they consider the armed services? I, I just truly believe me joining the Marine Corps changed who I am. And it, it, it created a, a mindset that, you know, you never give up. You're always there. You, you work hard. You show up you know, just show up and that's all. And, you know, we'll, we'll get the job done. We just need you there kind of thing. And, and you, you show up because everyone to your left and right shows up. Um, and just, you know, if you're young, you don't know exactly what, what Avenue you want to take. Uh, the military will always have your back. You sign that dotted line, uh, you have their back and they have your back and you know, it will be tough. (laughs) It's not going to be easy. Especially if you join the Marine Corps, I'm not uh, no shade at any other armed service. But uh, had I looked back, you know, I didn't know any other service to join. My dad was a Marine, and so I literally went to the recruiter's office and just said, "Sign me up." I didn't do any of the stuff beforehand, and I just waited for him to ship me off. I tried to see how much uh, booze I could drink in the meantime because I knew I wasn't going to be able to. I wasn't breaking the law. Excuse me, I was 21 at the time, right? I got you. Okay. Uh, sure. So I just, you know. Uh, Lastly, I guess, you know, if you're a young person and you're not sure where to go and that mil- that military lifestyle isn't for everyone and it is difficult, especially if you want to have personal relationships. Um, so just being there, showing up and uh, they'll always have your back and, you know, the benefits of being able to retire and have lifelong income and benefits and um, things of that nature. Um you know, for a long time, I was upset that I was out of the Marine Corps. You know, I was kind of, I was medically retired. So uh, it took me a while to get over that, but uh, I'm glad, I'm glad everything's worked out the way it was. I wouldn't be with this company now if it hadn't happened when it did. So um, everything's really worked out in the long run. And I think it's really, you know, turned a young, uh, foolish child into a man. Well said, very well said. Eddie, I mean, you're, you're, your nomination to me, I mean, it's a little bit different. Eddie and our friends have been friends a long, long, long time. I mean, it was not necessarily about his military career, but how you believe that's helped shape, mold, um, how important he is to your business organization. 100% Ken. From the day I met Danny three years ago, when I got the phone call, he was coming to Mannheim, Darlington. And I called this guy. He was in Indiana at the time. And I said, I'm calling him. I don't know him, but I'm calling him. And from the time I talked to him on the phone to this day, this guy's been phenomenal. I love this guy to death, man. What you've heard him say, he would do anything for anybody. He's got everybody's back. You can't, you can't make that kind of stuff up. That's who he is. And his work ethic, I mean, he, the, the energy he brings, I'm 57 year old man. Okay. This guy's 20 something years younger than me. I mean, he motivates me every day. I mean, he's taking my game. It looks like you kick your butt if you don't. I'm good at at breaking kneecaps. Hey, I'm not going to mess with him, man. I mean, hey, when it's all said and done, we got to work together, man. You know, and I'm like, this is a great dude. Well, thanks to you, Eddie, and congratulations, Danny. But but we got some businesses here locally that want to do a little more than say um, thank you. They, they want to give you some cool gifts, and I'll let Rev tell you about that. Uh, we have some prize bags with various premiums, courtesy of Pepsi, Tandem Health, and FTC. That it also includes gift cards that are provided by Swipe Payment Solutions, Boykin Air Conditioning Services, Piggly Wiggly of Darlington and Hartsville, At Your Service Home Care, the 19th Green Indoor Golf Center, and Heinz Furniture. Also have an oil change, courtesy of Florence Toyota. And we're going to set you up with a... Uh, a staycation in downtown Florence with a one-night stay at Hotel Florence and a $50 dinner gift card for Victor's Steak, Wine, and Seafood that's located in Hotel Florence downtown.
Wow. Cool yeah. deal. Yeah. Cool. Thank you so much. Uh, really can I trade in some of those gift cards for a babysitter? <laughs> <laughs> we'll see if we can work that out. Thank, thank you, Thank you all, thank you all very yeah, much. Thanks to both of y'all. Thank we'll you. take a break. Thank we'll be back in just a couple of minutes. A little beach, a little routine I like A blue ocean view Free to go with the flow Anywhere that I wanted to But the moment you said Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. So Rev is, I think, okay with the choice of um. I mean, we um oh, we yeah. didn't divorce Springsteen because we didn't same sex marriage, but right. we did um file a fraud case. Yeah, and as part of the fraud case, I mean, there, there were some. We're done um, with him. Yeah, I mean, there, there was goodness. some. Uh, what, what am I trying to say? Restraining orders hmm. that went into motion and went in action, I and see. um. So Bruce is no longer allowed in the studio. We replaced him with um with George Strait. I'm, I'm good with it. And you said that we could play a George Strait song every Friday for a year, and every one of those songs be a number one hit. Pretty much. I mean, how many number one hits George Strait has? I mean, question. it's a bunch. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot. It's a lot more than Springsteen had. Um, <laughs> so it was between Dylan and George Strait, and we didn't want to just completely freak our audience <laughs> out, so we, we landed on uh, on George Strait. But there's a cool line in that song when he says, um, what's the beginning of it? A nice little lie, a little boat, a little beach, a little routine I like. As you get older, there's a line in uh, Bob Seger's uh, Against the Wind when he says, I began seeking shelter again and again. You know, in other words, I, I kind of want that nice little life, that nice little beach, that nice little boat. Um, because when you're younger, man, you're chasing it all. You know what I mean? You're uh, bigger and better and badder, and you get a little older and like, oh, I don't know about that bigger and better and badder. <laughs> give, me, give me a little um, simplicity, and I think I'll be just fine george Strait had 60 number ones wow 60 number one hits that's pretty crazy um and a lot of commercial success i mean obviously with number one hits a lot of commercial success yeah. but but has always been tell me if i'm wrong you're you're a music guy has always been the consistent i mean just steady you can always count and, on and it. you guys can jump in here now um is george Strait the the link between what we call outlaw country music would be Big Haggard and Jones and and Willie and Waylon and Cash and all that crowd. Rev, would George Strait be the link between them and this new modern iteration of country music? I think just from the standpoint as he's 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 been around through sort of different genres of country music and and different uh, peaks of styles of country music. But he's, he's never been as big a deal as Garth. Right, but he's been consistent. And you gotta give him credit for that because he's having hits the whole time. Good deal. Right. Hey, all three of our um of our delegation, we got a trifecta of uh of members of the South Carolina General Assembly with yeah, us this. this morning. We got a call, let's go to the phone, then we'll get to our our task at hand. Jim in Florence. Hello, Jim. Hey, good morning guys. So Ken, um 
uh, I appreciate you spending the last two days telling everybody that I, I actually was right. Um, <laughs> I think I need to get you and my wife together. Um, <laughs> you but, were uh, right on this single issue. I mean, I, I, you know, you you on this particular issue, I, I've got I've got. And, and what I said, I mean, for for arguments, the, like, the biggest takeaway was Ken was wrong. Yeah, well, I mean, know, the, not only was Jim right, but Ken well, was I mean, wrong. It, when I said that we didn't have these sorts of problems when I was a kid. The statistics show we did. I mean, we had at least as big a problem when I was a young person, and then they passed the 94 Violent Crime Control Act, and it worked. I mean, it did discourage and, and, and put violent crime in, in dramatic decline. We went from, um, Jim, I'll, I'll set the table for you. We went from 11.2 murders in South Carolina per 100,000 people all the way down to 5.7, and now we're seeing since the 2010 Obama legislation, the Sentencing Reduction Act, we're seeing kind of a, a um, I mean, we, we had an incline or a, an increase, then a dramatic decline after passing this piece of legislation. And now that we've rescinded parts of the legislation, we're seeing an uptick in violent crime. No doubt about it. Uh, exactly right. I mean, it's not that I was right. It was just that I went and looked at the stats before I opened my mouth. But there are parts of the 94 crime bill that I agree and disagree with. I mean, there's no such thing as perfect legislation. But there's no denying that the late 90s and, um, through 2010 was probably, now let me back up, was the safest time in American history with the least violent crime. Um, you know, I agree with your assertions of the 94 bill and the 2010 uh, federal legislation, uh, the Obama legislation, but we cannot forget that 2010 South Carolina so-called Sentencing Reform and Crime Reduction Act that was written by a PD uh, Democrat senator, but was passed by a Republican legislature and a Republican governor that has more to do with the crime problem we're seeing here in South Carolina than those federal legislations do. Um, but Ken, I think you kind of asked me a question the other day that kind of caught me off guard and I wasn't necessarily prepared for about what, what, what are some things that I would do um, if I was king of the world? Um, one of the so a few things I would do is I would directly elect judges top to bottom. Um, we are a so-called Republican-controlled state, but we have a woke Democrat, Donald Beatty, as justice of the Supreme Court. He's leading a California-style Supreme Court. Um, simply put, the proof is in the pudding that the legislature is not doing a good job picking judges. I mean, look at the problems that everyone talks about in Florence County um, with the magistrates. Um, we need to elect solicitors by county, not by judicial circuit. We need to bring politicians closer to the people, not further away. Um, that, because if you look at uh, the demographics and the, um, the way Marion County and Florence County uh, votes, you will always have a Democrat solicitor in Florence County. Um, we need to repeal the 2010 South Carolina Sentencing Reform Act. Um, and I think that's for obvious reasons. We need to set minimum funding standards for police and sheriff's department. You know, Georgia actually funds their sheriff's departments through the state legislature. Simply uh, an example. It's not a suggestion. Um, I think police chiefs should be appointed to four-year terms to eliminate constant changing and protect them from fly-by-night political forces and sort of insulate them from city managers. You know, there's a lot of cities in Louisiana that elect their police chiefs um, directly. Again, just an example, not a suggestion. Um, but lastly, we must seriously invest in economic um, development in rural South Carolina, including the PD, because, I mean, 
was it President Reagan said it best? The best social welfare program is a job. So thank you, guys. Thank you, Jim. That's a lot. I mean, Jim hit uh, uh, the the one point we've tried to make, and I and I've given these guys fair warning, not warning, but uh, kind of a heads up that I want to talk a little bit about crime. Um, we, we had a terrible killing uh, last week. We had another one this week. Uh, I made the comment, guys, that this didn't happen when I was a kid. Jim said, yes, it did, and it did. But we didn't have social media. We didn't have Twitter and, and Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and all these other sorts of things to basically, I don't know, I don't say hyperbolize the situation, but maybe in, more in your face than normal. Um, and I did do some digging on some of the, um, some of the federal legislation, some of the federal policy. Um, Jim's opinion is the state can do more. Uh, Philip, I'll start with you. You've been a, a strong advocate for economic development. Um, that means roads and bridges and water and sewer, but it also means a community has to be perceived as safe. And right now, whether it's justified or not, there is a stigma that Florence County has a crime problem. D- do you agree with that? And, and what do you think the General Assembly can assist or aid in addressing that problem well i think you have to divide the county into the florence city and the florence county and if you take those stats of florence city and you annex the southwest portions of town which are our suburbs of this town you'd find we quickly fall out of the top five or six in south carolina so you know stats are just one of those things that we pull them when they're to our favor when you keep looking long enough you'll find some that you can support the other side of the argument but you know staying out of jail not being a criminal is the same part of just life in success that is you know, finish your education get a job and get married before you have kids and most of these problems will go away now if i can add a personal note to that is go to a christian church if if you obey all those we'll get along pretty good in society that doesn't mean we're all perfect but uh, that would solve a lot of it. But but I, I want you guys, and I think th- this will be more specific to Jay and Philip than Mike. I mean, Mike will jump in here in a second. But but last year, you guys made as a priority in your budget request supporting law enforcement. Let, let's kind of delve into that a bit. I don't think people have understood uh, the, the amount of funding, a request for funding and securing of funding that has enabled the Sheriff's Department in particular to have more assets to go after the criminal element. Well, I'm chairman of a the essentially the law enforcement and and criminals all all that stuff is is under my purview i guess and the ways and means committee i pulled together a special committee brought them all together and said what can we do to help law enforcement we came up with a, a good pay raise discussion and and what to do the governor got on board and it blew up from there we had a 17 percent increase in law enforcement pay raises so we're not at a point where law enforcement is going to look at their own children and say, hey, I think you ought to be in law enforcement. We have a long way to go. Jay is a lawyer. I mean, you're up close and personal to the legal system day after day after day. You hear some of the, I mean, it's easy for me to say the 94 Violent Crime Control Act, or the 2010 Fair Sentencing Act, the 1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act. But the fact is, this dictates what you can and cannot do in a court of law. You've explained to me yesterday some of the uh, some of the realities, practicalities of what you have to deal with in the legal system. You know, on the one hand, I can look you look you in the eye and tell you we absolutely have the the best system uh, in, in the history of the world. Um, we are not some of these countries around the globe that you know um, you, you you don't look at them and say they're innocent until proven guilty. We have a system of justice um, that protects 
and gives you your day in court. On the other hand, it comes. It, it, there's no such thing as a perfect system. I've been practicing law now for quite some time. I'm, I look around. I'm still the youngest person in this room, but I'm. I have been practicing law for quite some time, and I can. I can look back to that 2010 when Obama came into office, and he absolutely did reduce uh, sentencing um, for federal crime. Uh, when I first started going to federal court, everybody was getting 18, 20, 22, 24 years, and that number dropped dramatically. In addition to that, that 2010 legislation let a lot of people out of prison pretty pretty uh, next day, basically. So there, there are some statistics we can look at and see um, the results there. As to the problems we face here at home, um, I, I think we're, we'd be blind to say we don't have a problem. I think Phillip's right. We could certainly say the city is, is and the county are two different animals uh, in the sense of um, the, the, the hills they have to, to climb. Um, we, I, I know we've all worked with the sheriff. He's, he's been um, a breath of fresh air, I'd say, in, in the last couple of years in the sense of uh, he calls me on a regular basis. We talk. And when he has a need, he's not afraid to ask us to go to Columbia and fight for funding to, to deal with that need. And we've had some success in bringing some of the resources back home for them to fight that, um, the, the needs of the day. And I can say this, I have tremendous confidence in, in that department that they're out there doing their absolute dead level best to protect us. Mike, I want to, I want to get you in here. You're the senator. Um, the Senate has a responsibility. The senator has a responsibility to, to appoint magistrates. There's a reformulating of how we do that. But right now, um, a lot of our listeners, a lot of your voters believe that magistrates are letting people out of jail that shouldn't be let out of jail. And 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 you're a person instrumental in, in, in addressing that if it's to be addressed. Uh, I don't want to ask you a question, but your, your commentary on that reality. Yeah, I mean, this is such an important topic, especially as you talk about economic development, the safety of our families, the quality of life. Um, I made the commitment and I stuck by it. And, and a lot of folks were not pleased when I said, decided I was going to object to every magistrate. It wasn't again, Ken, because I didn't think the magistrates, all nine of them were not good at what they did, but perception is reality. And until I had verifiable data to show which magistrates did a good job and which ones didn't, I decided to object to every one of them because the constituents deserve better. The voters deserve better. If, as I mentioned before, and I hate to get too granular in the details, but if the 353 magistrates in South Carolina are able to be appointed and reappointed with simply the minimum of a sled background check and they haven't done anything that's so nefarious that they get booted, but yet the Supreme Court, the appellate court, the circuit court, the family court of those 120 judges, they all go through a screening process that involves input from the community, that involves a review of the types of cases they decide on, that involves input from the attorneys that, that do cases before them, why wouldn't we have the same degree of rigor for the magistrate process? So when I called every one of the, the nine magistrates in Florence County, I said, look, I don't know you. Not saying you don't do a good job. You may be the greatest in the state, but I'm going to object to you and put you in holdover status and not reappoint you because my responsibility isn't to a particular magistrate. It's to the citizens and the voters of District 31 in Florence. I want to take a break. And I, want, I want to follow up. I think this conversation deserves more than one segment. Play too much George Strait at the beginning, I guess, <laughs> and we got uh, a bit behind. Let's do this, Mike. Let's take a break. We'll be back. We have a call. We'll, we'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. We have um, Senator Mike Rickenbaugh, Representative Jay Jordan, Representative Philip Lowe, 
in the studio with us. We had a call. I think the call dropped, 843-661-0937. I mean, I want to say this again. I said it a little bit last week after they left. you got three members of a delegation sitting in a studio with a crazy radio show host and an open phone line. I mean, I, I just think that is a celebration of democracy. I mean, we don't get much opportunity to have these sorts of conversations, and I respect and admire these guys to come in on Friday mornings and listen to what you have to say, say some things that you may disagree with. Um, you say some things that they may disagree with. But if we had more of that, I just think we'd have a, a better government. Mike wants to jump in. Yeah, you know, I just wanted to say thank you to Jim. Never met Jim, don't know who Jim is. That's one of the big reasons I come in here is to get the callers. Uh, I love you guys, but we can talk among ourselves any day of the week, all day of the week if we wanted to. But to hear from the callers, people that you may not see, in the grocery store, at the gym, or at the library, at the Y. That means a lot. So, Jim, I never met you. I'm sure we'll agree on things, disagree, but I encourage people to call. Call with your thoughts. Call with your suggestions. Legislators, governors, congressmen, senators, we are not going to be able to fix this country. It's not our role to be able to fix it all. We're going to need input from the, the people who are boots on the ground, who are living it, who are walking it. And we'll do our part and we'll work hard. And I know the three of us here will do everything we can. But please call. Please suggest. Please talk to us. Give us your thoughts. Philip, what do you believe? Thank you, Mike. Philip, what do you believe is the responsibility, the ultimate responsibility of a, of a, of a delegation member, a member of the General Assembly that represents a certain district and a certain area in helping local law enforcement? I mean, obviously, that's under the purview of city and county council, but ancillarily. I mean, we talked about what you guys did last year. How can, I mean, if, if people in Florence believe we have a crime problem, they look to political leadership to help them solve that problem or address that concern. Um, you're in the room where the appropriating is done. You're in the room where the money gets spent. Well, what do you believe you can do to best help Florence address this crime problem that we have? Whether it's city or county, uh, we want to be safer and safer and safer. We want to have more economic development and more economic development. You make big, big pushes to invest in economic development, I applaud you that. I've done it, and I'll do it again. I think your mindset, your your uh, visionary approach to economic development will eventually lead to growth in this community. But people want to believe they're safe. H how can you be a part of that moving forward? Funding for the county is through the, the <coughs> county government dollars, and the city police is through the city. The state job that I have funds the sled and and highway patrol you know dnr all all those types that are statewide so it's a big deal when we can pull some extra dollars to help locally and it you know some people call that pork well you know this isn't a balloon festival this is law enforcement it's a core function of government and and we have the, this last year all three of us voted for the budget that that had extra money in for our sheriff's department to help them with uh, several needs that they had. And for two years in a row, we've provided extra funding for that. And, and you know, we had a bad shooting that, that took a, an officer. Uh, and, you know, it kind of hit me in the heart. And I said, I, I need to find out what they need, make sure we get more safety equipment and all. But from a statewide standpoint, by raising the the initial starting salaries there, it also has raised it down below. You can see most of the counties had to respond or they might lose some of their deputies or, or policemen 
to the state level of law enforcement. So I think helping to elevate salaries and keeping people in interested in that profession and starting out that profession was another way from a state level i can help <laughs> jay you said something to me yesterday talking about balloon festivals um you you, you kind of said that um it, it might be time we stop with the symbolism i mean the, the committees and you know the, the the campaigns and the billboard campaigns and and all the i mean they, they, they are feel good and they make people believe that we're trying to address. Uh, I said over the air, and I don't apologize. I mean, it's time to root out violent criminals. It's time to find out who they are, identify them, target them, take their guns, take their drugs, put them in prison. You kind of seem to me to agree with the more aggressive tact moving forward. You know, I think this goes back to something I said a little while ago, which is supporting those that we've entrusted to be out on the front line, protect us, um, to keep us safe. And this goes back, you know, one of my proudest moments in General Assembly when it was, was through a process that Philip and I worked together on a few years ago when the sheriff calls and says, you know, we need more money. We need some money uh, for firearms. We need some money for body cameras. You know, those are things that um, th- those are resources that are absolutely essential for law enforcement to go out here in Florence County and do their job and to protect us. And that's something I'm, I'm happy to go um, fight for in, in Columbia to say, these are resources that I need to help uh, help help provide back home, and we were successful in getting that funding, and then they used it appropriately and used it for for good. Um, and and so you know, there's at the end of the day, um, we put on a coat and tie and go to Columbia and represent our constituents. They put on a gun and a badge and go out in the world and defend us from the bad guys. And the the you know, like I said the other day, uh, as long as there's bad guys out there, and there are always going to be always going to be bad guys out there, there needs to be good guys out there protecting us. Good guys with guns, more good guys with guns than bad guys with guns. It always sounds strange. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Hello, Joe. You're on with the delegation. Yeah, good morning, guys. You know, there's an old saying that figures never lie, but liars sometimes figure. Data is a hard thing to get past. And when, when they let all these people out of jail during COVID, <clears throat> and no one expected the crime rate to go up, I don't know what they're thinking. But we should be supporting programs that the data supports. I mean, you can't call something racist if you go after crime. Crime has no race. Whoever's doing it, you get locked up. If it's 60% of these people, or 20% of these, but it doesn't matter. Crime is crime. Statistics say that a family unit that has a belief in God are more happy, more successful, and contribute more to society. So why don't we find programs and fund those It just boggles my mind that, you know, I I sat and watched the president last night, and I'll tell you what, God works in mysterious ways because he just showed us what these people are all about. And I hope people wake up. But we need to fund the programs that are going to enhance our society. And I don't know, we... 
we need to get together and have a long prayer session. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. Mike, you talk a lot about that. I mean, and Philip said it earlier. I mean, if you graduate from high school, if you don't have a kid before you get married, it doesn't stop you from being criminal, but it certainly decreases the likelihood that you end up on a pathway of crime. That is cultural. That is societal. And the data is pretty empirical about the chances of this happening or the chances of that happening. That's right. And Joel, I appreciate that, that call and that insight because ultimately, Ken, we cannot legislate the heart. There is no bill that changes someone's heart. A bill doesn't change someone's heart to say, you know what, I was going to go ahead and go down a path and then rob a liquor store or a convenience store, but you know, they passed that bill up in Columbia. I think I'll change my mind now. It's not how it works. Didn't work on drugs. It's certainly not going to work on crime. So legislating the heart isn't going to happen, but I believe, and it may not be popular, we have got to now take the gloves off in terms of what we're prepared to do to the violent criminals in our society. There's an institutionalization of some of the hardest criminals. I was with a federal prosecutor last night in Fear and Florence and a, and a judge, and their point is they see some of the most the hardened repeat offenders who another five-year stretch, another seven-year stretch, it's just part of what they do. They've got an entire culture and family in prison. We've got to be prepared to say, you'll never see the light of day. And quite frankly, I think we need to have the conversation that if you take someone's life, whether it's premeditated or not, if you walk into that convenience store and you blow a clerk away, who's trying to just make a living for his family, we got to talk about what's the death penalty going to do. And I, cause I think there's a point where you say another five years, another 10 years, another 15 years isn't going to make a difference but we are gonna stick a needle in your arm and it's an eye for an eye. You took someone's life, now we are gonna take yours. And I think that's the conversation that we need to get back to. Have a call? Yep. Uh, Breeze is on the line, has a question for the delegation. Hey, Breeze. Well, really, you know, I hate to bug you twice, Kim, but you know what, guys? All of the money in the world won't help anything. If not, now, if nobody wants the police state, I'm not saying that, but if the police out there don't feel like they've got the backing of the community and they're more worried about them being prosecuted than the bad guys being prosecuted and they can't go out and do proactive police work, they, the police need to know that, that, that the community and the legislature and, the, and everybody has their back. They, a policeman doesn't need to go to work worried that if he does his job, his life is going to be destroyed, and he'll probably end up in jail. Now, I'm not you talking about the obvious cases. That's not what we're talking about. But there's a lot of cases where the policeman gets persecuted for just doing his job, and he's sitting there saying, you know what, it doesn't matter if you pay me 50 grand or 100 grand, I'm not going to go out there and risk going to jail, risk having my life destroyed and ruined, just trying to do the right thing. And so the policemen aren't getting any support from the community. If whatever neighborhood the violent crime is in, if the residents of that community do not want police help, then what are you going to do? You know, and if the policeman sits there and every move he makes is being videoed and questioned by a thousand different lawyers trying to think of how to throw him in jail instead of wondering how the guy got in the police, you know, how it got that way in the first place, you know, what, what was the initial cause? The policeman wouldn't be there unless there was a cause to be there. So if these cops don't realize that, they, that we have their back, I wouldn't blame them one bit for not doing a damn thing. Philip, I'll let you address that. In 2015, we had a, a very racially motivated or, or propagated problem that just, just went all through 
society, and it's it just ruined morale completely. This defund the police organizations came floating out of it. Ideas like that have just taken police kind of out of the desire to stick their neck out anymore because someone's going to judge them. They're never going to see the first 15 minutes of what happened, but that someone's got it on tape and got the bad part where they were cracking down on someone's head. And we've police have done some bad things in, in sure. time. You know, we, we all know that too. There's we, They get excited or or, or even break the law, you know, go overboard with policing. But until we get police back to where their morale is to the point that they're willing to tell their own children that law enforcement is a worthwhile type of a career to go into, we're not going to solve the policing problem. But this, this is a system, and the system is broad. It goes from judges, the type of judges, the type of magistrates, uh, the laws we pass, how they're enforced, uh, how— it all works together, and, and weirdly enough, even defending people who are indigent. If you don't have enough people defending people, then those cases sit for so long that people get off. The criminals get off because at some point law enforcement officers move on, so we have to have enough speed in the system to try cases to to get it to happen. And, and right now, it seems like we probably are settling too many. And we've, we're in a position where we're emptying our jails out when maybe some of them need to sit in jail a little bit. Jay, you're a lawyer. There's a playbook for the typical stop. I mean, there's a playbook to go by. These guys are trained. Um, if they stop Jay Jordan or Mike Rickenbar or, or Ken Ard or Philip Lowe or Dave Baker, we stop. They say, can you see your li- show your license? Would you step out of the car? You step out of the car. That's 99.9% of the stops. But all of a sudden, the linebacker blitzes. You didn't see him coming. You're blindsided. The play gets blown up, and everybody's scrambling, trying to figure out what to do then. I think Breeze's point is on, on the atypical stop, well, when the guy starts running or attacks the police officer, struggles for the gun, there's no playbook there. I mean, it, it's survival mode 101, and I do believe that the judicial system has put law enforcement in a brighter spotlight and, and made them the, the perpetrator of a crime when, when all they did was trying to go by the playbook, what, 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 I mean, the, the, as a lawyer in the legal system, how, how do we address that? How do we allow the police officer? And once again, Philip said it. They're not perfect. Nobody professes they're perfect. Nobody's perfect in any walk. I mean, they're good car dealers and bad car dealers. They're good developers and bad. They're good lawyers and bad. I mean, law, law enforcement officers are not exception or immune to that. But, but how do we make sure they get treated fairly in the abnormal circumstance? Well, and this might not be a perfect answer to your question, but I can take you back to a very practical moment in time when really things changed dramatically, and that was with the advent of the cell phone uh, camera. And so now you have people videoing the police trying to do their job, and there are some examples of it of that scenario exposing some real um, – Some bad apples. Some bad apples, exactly, and some tragedies that occurred. On the other hand, there are some examples of – folks taking a snippet uh, or a small piece of video that has created some terrible problems for some law enforcement folks that totally didn't fully uh, explain the situation. If you show up and you see, let's say you start video and, and you see the, the police officer rolling around on the ground with, with this with this, with this this fella, um, but you don't see what happened immediately prior. You don't see him go for that gun or try and assault the uh, law enforcement officer. You don't see all that. And that creates a situation where now the police officer is having to defend himself, having to, and not just in, on the scene, but moving forward because there's this video and all it shows is the fight. It doesn't show what led to the fight. This takes us back to uh, a few years ago when we decided 
body cameras were going to become a, a thing of reality. And there was some pushback, and the, the concern on the body camera was, we don't need to put law enforcement under a microscope so that everything they do and everything they see and everything they participate in has to be on 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 camera. I mean, if you put a camera on all, any of us 24-7, you probably wouldn't like that. But it's turned out to be a blessing in, in reality in that I can't tell you I've had law enforcement come up to me, you know, the camera tells the whole story. You know, if, if it were for just for that uh, video guy walking by taking the picture, I'd be in a lot of trouble. But because of that body camera that saw the whole thing, saw me make the, the stop like I was supposed to, saw me do everything I was supposed to, and then that individual turned on me and put me in a, in a defensive position. It tells the whole story, and from a practical position, we now have another tool for law enforcement that protects them. And, Mike, there's an intent. I mean, there are organizations, Philip mentioned a second ago, defund the police. I mean, there are national organizations that intend to put an officer in a bad position. That's absolutely right. And, you know, Jay's point about the body cam is such a, a salient point because it's ended up being a good thing. You know, when I was first sworn as a law enforcement officer 23 years ago now, obviously we didn't have anything like body cameras. It was one word against another. Fast forward now two decades, and it's a good thing. But I'll tell you where a challenge is. Where's the public responsibility, the personal responsibility and the shame? I remember a stop, and this was probably 10, 10 years ago. Guy had been drinking, drinking hard. We, we, we pulled him over, myself and the contact officer. He got out of his car, and, you know, and he said, you know, I'm not going back. And uh, he looked at us, and we looked at him, and we drew our weapons, and we we're like, we're not going to fight you because he was all, he was fired up. He had, you know, he was ready to go, and we're like, we're not, we're not doing this with you right now because, if you lose and he takes your weapon, it's going to go even worse. But after that, there's a reason to the story. After that, he came to us and he sobered up and he said, you know, I'm so embarrassed. Uh, I'm embarrassed for the way I acted and would you accept my apology? Nowadays, if somebody acts like that, you got a good chance of them being on the courtyard, courthouse steps with some attorney who says, oh, he was a victim. They talked harsh to him. They hurt his feelings. He grew up in a bad family. Actions have consequences. We all got a history. We all got life. Where's the personal responsibility and the shame that says, when I've screwed up, I need to go ahead and own it? Well said. Thanks to both of you. We got uh, thanks to all three of you. Um, we could do this for a much longer mm -hmm. time, but we don't. We'll we'll continue um, after the Gamecocks and Tigers are one and zero next weekend. <laughs> enjoy. Um, hey, uh, enjoy both. Uh, mm -hmm. Enjoy the three of your weekends. And we'll talk again next Friday. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Linda in Florence. Good morning. You're on the air. Ken, I just want to say amen to Mike Birkenbach for saying an eye for an eye. I have been saying for years until the punishment matches the crime, there's not going to be any change in what we have in our society. And another thing is our leaders in Washington, the federal employees, like Lois Lerner with the IRS, okay? Why was she allowed to retire and still keep her pension? They ought to know that there's accountability even at that level for lying and doing things that are not right for the people that pay their salaries. Anybody in Washington should not be above the law. Like a lot of these liars right now that, that came up with the Russian collusion against Trump. Why isn't there accountability? Why 
why if you if they knew like with somebody that shoots somebody if they know that they're going to die by lethal injection or however without a doubt they know if I kill somebody I'm going to die too they think more about killing somebody if these federal employees thought that they would lose their pensions and their benefits by doing things that are wrong in Washington, I think they'd think twice about it. Right now, there's no accountability for either one of them, and that's all I've got to say. Thank you, Linda. Appreciate that. You know, 20 years ago when I began my political career, <laughs> and I guess it's turned into a career like everything else does, I, I, I spoke to a group in Greenville. I don't know. I might have been running for lieutenant governor. I had to be if I was in Greenville. Um, and, I, and I said something about a bureaucratic accountability act. Hold bureaucrats accountable. Because the government doesn't. I mean, if you get entrenched, I mean, we've talked about Well, if they're you know, part of the cathedral. Well, I mean, sure. And, and that's it goes back to the, um, the percentage of private sector employees that get fired every year and the percentage of public sector employees that get fired. It's hard to do that. But, I mean, there, there are two sets of rules. You know that. I know that. Nobody's speculating whether or not there's two sets of rules. We know there is. Take a break. Back in a minute. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. 843-661-0937. Fox News Radio's Jared Halperin is in Philadelphia today. Jared, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Actually, to be fair, driving uh, midway between Philadelphia and D.C. Mm-hmm. Okay, you're, you're somewhere in the northeastern United States, somewhere in transit from one point uh, to another. Thank right. you thank you for your time this morning. So um, President Biden gave a speech last night, a little bit different, a little bit unique. Um, Twitter's had a lot to say about it. Facebook obviously <laughs> has had a lot to say about it, uh, depending on where you sit in the political spectrum and what your political beliefs are. But it was very interesting to me, um, Jared, that it was not about a matter of national security. It was not about a particular piece of legislation he's trying to advance. And it, and it kind of morphed into an argument about the, the danger the MAGA Republicans posed to his words, the very foundations of our republic. Am I wrong that it was a bit different, uh, a different no, sort of speech? No, I, look, there, I think that there are a lot of questions about, you know, the timing of the speech, giving it, as you point out, in prime time, generally a time that's reserved for matters of critical national importance. Um, uh, usually those speeches are given from the White House. This was at uh, Independence Hall um, in Philadelphia, a big national park. Um, and uh, it was an official White House speech that was very political, right? I mean, calling out specifically Donald Trump, calling out leadership in the MAGA Republican movement, um, urging people to vote. Those those are generally things that are reserved uh, for the campaign side of things. And listen, it's fine for presidents to give campaign speeches. They do it all the time, right? But they are billed as campaign speeches. This was not that. And that's why it is raising some questions about you know, uh, the, the timing of it, the, the message of it, um, and, and what sort of the political ramifications may be now for it uh, moving forward. Very little was said about policy. There was a little bit, but most of it was about how the president views a, a very existential threat here to democracy, to the American institution uh, from Donald Trump, from, uh, as he calls them, MAGA Republicans, um, undermining the rule of law, uh, refusing to concede elections and things like that. Uh, again, I think the president views those as very much in his um, uh, role is, is pointing out dangers to the country. Um, 
But listen, you're right. It was a very political speech, and it's hard to win um, uh, hearts and minds sometimes when you're giving such a, a politically charged address. Jared, one of the lines that stuck out to me, I actually highlighted in some of the transcript I read this morning. Now, I want to be very clear up front that every Republican, not even a majority of Republicans or MAGA Republicans, that's just not true. The majority of Republicans today in America are MAGA Republicans to different degree and different extents. But but America First is by far um, winning the battle for the heart and soul of the Republican Party that a lot of the media enjoys discussing and talking about. So so when he says that that you know this existential threat is not the majority of Republicans, it, it really is the majority of Republicans who believe in this. I, I don't want to say far right, but new right. And, and new, you know, kind of an anti-globalist, anti-interventionist, uh, anti-China sort of mindset. But that seems to be exactly where the Republican Party is headed. Well, sure. But I don't think that's what the president's talking about when he describes MAGA Republicans. Again, he tries to draw a line here, and I don't know how successful it was, about what the dangers are. He did not talk about, um, you know, anti-interventionism or anti-global. He didn't talk about that, right? He talked about um, what happened on January 6th. He talked about refusing to concede elections, talked about uh, the, the, the way that, that, you know, political threats have been used. So I, I do think that, again, I think you're right in the sense that the Republican Party has certainly moved in the direction of former President Trump. And that is the dominant uh, uh, force of the Republican Party um, from a policy standpoint. I, I think the president's trying to point out that there is much more to it than just that policy, and that's what he's trying to view as an existential threat. But you're right. That is why when he sort of uses this phrase like MAGA Republicans, it's very easy for Republicans to say he is disparaging tens of millions of American voters. And, um, uh, you know, uh, the White House, I think, is trying to thread a needle here that, that has not been well explained, to your point. Jared, as a former politician, recovering politician here in South Carolina, which is a, a deep red state, easy for Republicans to win here, not so much in other places, um, it seems to me that they have internal polling. I'll give you my opinion. It seems to me they have internal polling that suggests as long as we're talking about Trump, we're not talking about inflation, we're not talking about you know right, right direction, wrong direction, some of these uh-huh. macros that have historically dominated yeah. you know what who wins elections and and what wave is it a blue wave or a red wave and i think they have made a uh, a firm commitment to make this midterm uh, about donald trump as much as they possibly can because he is a very controversial political figure i think that's right no i think that's 100 percent right now i've not seen that polling myself but i think you're right that there must be something right if this election is a referendum on joe biden's first two years in office it probably goes the way that a lot of folks think it's going to go, right, with a, a, a Republican takeover of the, the Congress. If the White House can try and make this and Democrats can make this about Biden versus Trump, then I think the White House feels a little bit better, <laughs> right, that, that, you know, they're talking about stuff beyond, as I said, just the policies and policies and, and, um, and accomplishments or lack of accomplishments is however you view them. I think you're absolutely right that, this, and again, that's why I say that it's fine for presidents to give campaign speeches, but this was not billed as that. And I think that is why a lot of Republicans and even some Democrats have sort of questioned here the timing of this speech and the message of the speech, the way that this speech was delivered. Very well explained. Jared, thank you for your time. Safe travels. Have a great Labor Day weekend. You too. Thank you.
so much. Thank you very much. An interesting guest. That was a good guest. Jared Halperin, uh, not in Washington, not in Philadelphia, <laughs> but in transit somewhere yep. between Washington Driving and Philadelphia. Home. So, Freehold, how far from Philadelphia to Washington? Mm, two hours. Okay, a couple of half. hours from yeah. um, from um, D.C. to Philly. Uh, I mean, it gives an interesting perspective. And, and I'll tell you, um, as you create a comfort level with some of these journalists, I mean, they, they, they don't let their guard down because I'm not their employee. Fox News is. And Fox News will make sure they don't stray too far uh, into the opinion world. But but as you create comfort with these guests, they, they'll 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 expose themselves every now and then. Um, I just thought it was odd. I mean, I wrote down this morning and I'll say it again. Clinging to their guns and religion. Um, basket of deplorables. Greatest threat to democracy ever were three things said, not by Donald Trump, but rather the most recent three candidates and presidents of the Democrat Party. Uh, it's I just got to believe, Rev, and I said it, I'll be a little bit redundant here. They've, they've got some pretty dependable internal polling that shows them. I'm not talking about CBS or ABC. I mean, those are gimmicky polling, uh, gimmicky polls. We tried to elaborate a little bit this morning. One of these aha moments when uh, you know, the checks, the checker player says, okay, I get it now. The reason a poll would try to argue that Blake Masters is down 11 or 12 or 13 points, Arizona's a swing state. Nobody's going to win a statewide race by 11 points. I mean, they're just not. That's not New York, not South Carolina. Nobody's going to win a statewide race if both candidates are, are fairly well funded by 11 points. I mean, that just ain't happening in a swing state. It'll be a four three or four, maybe a five-point race one way or the other. It'll be a 53-47 at worst. I mean, you know, Kelly or Masters could win 53-47. It'll probably be 51-49-ish, somewhere there about, because it's a swing state. But when you when you argue that Masters is 12 points behind in the summertime, in political vernacular uh, or verbiage, we call it, you know, the summertime bowling. What, what, is, what is the intent of the summertime bowling? Uh, well, well, they know that all of the insiders are paying close attention. Everybody else is trying to go on vacation, you know, enjoy the summer on the boat at the beach, blah, blah, blah. Um, but the, the ones that contribute to campaigns, the, the more activist, the, the more engaged politico is seeing masters down nine, masters down 10, masters down 11. Article of the Wall Street Journal says never before has a Republican senatorial committee uh, uh, candidate been this far behind. This is what they get for nominating Trump-endorsed candidates. So in the summertime, um, as people vacation in the Hamptons, they start making these decisions about, you know, this money they've got that they historically contributed to political campaigns and action committees, and where do they allocate those funds? Now, we're talking about a lot of money. We're talking about millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. And if those people are drinking their, um, you know, their 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 wine on the at, the, um, at their house in the Hamptons, and they see a story that says Masters is down 11. Another story says he's down 10. Another says he's down 11.75. They're probably going to say to themselves, I'm not making a contribution to Blake Masters. I've always contributed to national candidates. And Masters is kind of a national candidate because we're talking about the majority in the Senate. J.D. Vance has taken on kind of a national brand. Um, people in South Carolina want J.D. Vance to win. Republicans in South Carolina want uh, Blake Masters to win. How how bad? I don't know, but I can tell you this: if I had a thousand bucks to disperse amongst three or four senatorial candidates that don't live in South Carolina, and I thought one was really behind by eleven, that'd be a bad move. 
Why not send it to J.D. Vance? Why not send it to Herschel Walker? I mean, they're within, you know, Vance is leading in Ohio. Herschel's, I mean, according to what poll, he's leading. Uh, and I just think they've identified Pennsylvania and Arizona as the two places to try and scam the public on polling. I think those two states, and they'll, they'll do this. If you pay attention, they'll find a couple of states. Oz is an easy guy to pick at, right? I mean, he's kind of an oddball. I mean, there, there's no question about it. Um, he's not your conventional political uh, figure. Certainly not a Republican. His name is Oz. Well, he, there you go. <laughs> I mean, hey, uh, you're voting for Dr. Oz as your senator in Pennsylvania, so that's kind of an easy target. Um, so they say he's 10 down. He's 12 down. Um, I don't know if you saw this or not, but Fetterman has not agreed to do any debates. Um, and the media says, how dare Oz take advantage of his health circumstance? Well, how dare you vote for a guy recovering from a stroke to be your senator? Right. I mean, the absurdity of that. Um, he sounds like Joe Biden. Uh, I mean, he does. If Joe Biden and Fetterman were to converse about politics, it sounds like Bob Dylan and James Brown. I mean, nobody would understand what, what the saying? hell they're talking about. What did James say? What did Bob say? I don't know. I don't have any idea. Um, but <laughs> well, I mean, seriously. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> I mean, it, when Dylan talks, nobody's like leaning in like, what did he say? I don't know, man. I mean, they called him the Godfather. I don't know what he's saying. I mean, <laughs> what did James say? Don't know. Just keep playing. He pays us. I mean, just keep playing. I mean, I saw a, a video of Fetterman the other day and didn't understand a word of what he was saying. He, he doesn't understand what he's saying. The guy's like recovering. Two or three different subjects were in the same he's, sentence. He's recovering from a pretty serious stroke. I know. But Oz is the guy that's suspect. Uh, the national media is now all of a sudden accusing Oz of taking it, picking on a guy who's getting over And those stroke. polls. Those polls. Yeah, but, but, the, but then the polls are what I want to get at. So, so in the summertime, when these polling show Pennsylvania to be in a certain place, Arizona to be in another place, that is intended to discourage you from making contributions or are those in the Hamptons making much larger contributions? There is no accuracy to any of those polls. None. I mean, those are scams for polls that those are like the, um, uh, the, the infomercial trying to sell you a Whopper chopper at three o'clock on a, on a night, you've got the flu and can't sleep. I mean, it's interesting to me how, you know, it, when you see these ads, the Whopper chopper will be an example. That's kind of an old Fred Sanford uh, uh, Sanford and Son. Some guy sells these anyway. Um, the the water from the the Black Sea, you know, the healing water. You often think to yourself, nobody would ever buy that, but it's been on for ten years. So somebody's having to buy, you know, the the healing water from the from the Black Sea or the Red Sea or whatever. Um, the polls are scams, and you're going to begin after Labor Day seeing legitimate polling. From legitimate polling companies and and i'll bet you that the poll will have fetterman up two or three and probably masters down two or three that's when it's a hotly contested race and i'll go back to the conversation breeze and i had this morning if the republicans had any guts about them if republican leadership reflected donald trump in any way shape or form like trump don't like trump i get it but if the republican leadership accepted the will of its constituency and that is to be more combative, to, to be more disagreeable, to believe in America first more than you do. Mitch McConnell would be in Arizona with his arm around Blake Masters saying, this is our guy. This is who the people of Arizona elected to be their Republican nominee. He's our guy. I'm here with a check for $8 million, and we're up running on television next week. But instead, 
He's pulled about $8 million in funding. They're not going to up on television until October. And I say it, and I'll say it again. McConnell would rather be sure of a position as minority leader than uncertain about a position as a majority leader. That's what a creature of Washington does. It's not about the country. It's not about the people. It's all about him. What is his political fate and future about? Where, where, Where does he have or lose the most influence and power? So as minority leader, he's still a player. I mean, he's, a, he's one of the five or six or seven most important people in Washington when it comes to policy. But but if he's ousted as majority leader, he's done. I mean, he's over. He's 70-something years old. He's a, a former majority leader. Who wants to be a former majority leader? Nobody. That's when it's time to come home. And that's what he's worried about. If Fetterman, uh, if, uh, if Oz wins in Pennsylvania and Masters wins in Arizona, they're going to win the Senate. I mean, I'm still convinced that Herschel Walker, despite his flaws, is going to win in Georgia. I think, and here's why, because I think Georgia has done the best job of anybody in America making sure we have an honest and fair election. Now, now it won't be perfect. It never has been, never will be. There will still be some shenanigans. But by and large, Georgia, more than anybody, addressed some of the discrepancies that were allowed in 2020. They're not going to be allowed in 2022 or 2024 so i think walker wins but but if if oz or um masters win i think jd vance wins ohio but if you think about it guys ohio's not a gain i mean portman's retiring so that's a hold and then you've got two or three other states where the republicans are trying to hold on um but but i you know warnock and and walker would be a flip um oz is a hold and, and I, I'm just not as optimistic about Oz because I just I've always thought Oz was a kind of an odd political figure. Um, and then he goes and does, I don't know if you saw this or not, but he buys lettuce and carrots and all these other sorts of things. Re- Republican voters, I mean, yeah, I mean they're, they're just seemed out of touch. Yeah, well, I mean most Republicans ain't vegetarians, okay? I mean most Republicans will eat a hamburger, cook a steak, <laughs> you know, grill some chicken every now and then. And I think when you get you you, you expose yourself to a certain quirkiness that makes people a little bit uncomfortable. Let's take a break. We'll be back on the other side. Got a couple of calls. We've threatened to not talk politics in the <laughs> nine o'clock hour, but up until but, now, that's all we've done is threaten not to talk politics in the nine o'clock hour. Last hour of the week. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. BT in Florence. Morning, BT. Hey, good morning. Since this is the last hour of the week, I was wondering about your prediction for the Gamecocks football wins and losses this year and you think it'll be a sellout tomorrow billy bryce uh given that they're playing georgia state for the opener thank you bt appreciate that now we're talking see now we're getting off to where we should be getting off um last report i heard there were 100 tickets left sometime late yesterday afternoon i think the students had picked it up i mean they've already picked up their full allotment that's encouraging uh my daughter's there and says that beamers really interacted with the kids and you can sense that i mean he's a little like Dabo. he's kind of an excitable guy an emotional guy a younger guy um you would expect him to be a little more popular than someone like will muschamp i mean you know will was kind of a hardliner old school football coach um you know i think clemson fans will admit this there's a little bit about Beamer that reminds you of Dabo. Um, kind of a salesman, exciting, um, enthusiastic, uh, to the point of being a little bit silly at times. You know, old school football coaches don't like the way Dabo's done it. I mean, they just don't. 
and they probably don't care much for the way. Oh, you heard um, the Kentucky coach, you know, talking about culture yeah. and building a program. And he said, you know, there's a lot of difference than just, you know, jumping around in front of people with sunglasses on. And Beamer took that as a, yeah. um, a kind of a shade. personal shot. Um, as far as the record goes, ah, I can see this team five and seven. I can see this team eight and four. I mean, I think they're the Arkansas game in the second week. I mean, Arkansas is a top 25 team on the road. Uh, I think that game really sets the kind of the tenor. There'll be a surprise. Well, there always is. Yeah. I mean, they'll lose to somebody you'd expect them to lose to. They'll beat somebody you didn't expect them uh, to beat. But the, the Gamecocks have gotten themselves in a place. And I think, I mean, I talked to a guy that's um, far more in tune than I am. I mean, I, you know, I don't want to tell you his name, but I mean, he's a guy that very close to the program, very close to the program. And he told me today's Friday, he told me Tuesday or Wednesday that, um, but they're going to be light years better at quarterback. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Last year, you were down to Luke Doty with a bum foot. And Luke has never played a football game as quarterback of South Carolina with a good foot. I mean, he had a broken bone at the top of his foot. He was limited. And if Luke can't run, he can't play. But you go out and sign a bona fide elite talent. Now, I didn't say an elite quarterback. I mean, that, that jury is still out. But there's no doubt that Spencer Rattler is an elite talent. He has a skill set unlike any quarterback the Gamecocks have ever had, including Connor Shaw. I mean, really? it's not good, but it's not even close. I mean, Connor was a kind of a working man quarterback. I mean, he won games, won no doubt games. about it. But this kid, I mean, this Spencer Rattler kid, I mean, he was the number one recruit, excuse me, the one, number one or two, depending on what recruiting agency you believed in, uh, recruit when he signed with Oklahoma. And he, and he, I mean, he, I think he's, he's just got a little bit of Stephen Garcia in him. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, it kind of makes you say, what the hell? I mean, what, what, what are you doing now, man? Yeah. I mean, uh, he, he's had his issues. and um, But nobody's ever said this kid lacks talent. I mean, everybody at every stop has said this is an extremely talented, I mean, he's the most talented quarterback to ever play at South Carolina. Is he the best? I hope he is, but I don't have any idea. But if you put Connor Shaw and um, this kid in a combine and had to draft one or the other, I mean, you'd pick Rattler a hundred times. Um, I mean, That's I'm heard. I mean, I've just heard the ball flies out of his hand. He's very agile, very mobile. I mean, he's just an athletic kid. I mean, he's a five-star high school quarterback. Deshaun Watson and Trevor Lawrence were five-star high school quarterbacks. His skill set rivals those two. Now, up until now, he's had some issues, and he's not been able to get all of that settled um i i believe this if rattler is as good as advertised if he plays as well as he can they've got some talent the defensive line's going to be really good linebackers suspect safety's suspect probably better corner than they are at safety offensive line eh, lacks depth but i think they've got some some pretty decent players they, they landed a um a transfer from wake forest at running back and then they've got Marshawn Lloyd, who we believe is back healthy again. Wide receiver. Uh, they, they, the kid from Arkansas State was a freshman All-American, but that's Arkansas State. You know, he's not played the, the sort of competition. I don't get crazy about that. Josh Van's coming back. He'll be a pro player. Yeah, I mean, th there's a reason to be excited, but they're going to play a lot of teams that are at least as equally as talented as they are. I mean, Arkansas would be a good example. I mean, if, if an NFL scout watched Arkansas play South Carolina – and he said, okay, which team has the most potential NFL um, draft choices? It, he'd probably say it's pretty close. Now, when you play Alabama, it's obvious. When you play Clemson, it's obvious. I mean, if you have an NFL scout, um, 
hey, here's this tape of Clemson playing South Carolina. Which kids do you believe have the most potential to be drafted? People say, well, the team in Orange has a lot more kids. So, I mean, I'm not saying they're there because they're not there. Now, now we, we've argued that anything can happen on a given Saturday. It can. Um, but you look at Arkansas, you look at Kentucky, you look at uh, Tennessee, you look at Florida. I mean, those are four teams that are probably talent-wise a little bit better than South Carolina, but not much. It'd be like an NFL game. I mean, I read the other week where 70% of all the NFL games are one-possession games. Well, I mean, if you win all of them, you go 8-4. and four. If you lose all of them, you go 5-7. and seven. And that's just kind of where they are today. Um, but I'm excited. I'm excited because I feel like there's a guy there in charge that genuinely wants to be there. That matters to me. may not matter to anybody else. We know Beamer can do all of these other things. Can he coach? We'll find out. Um, you asked a lot of him last year to be good. They had a graduate assistant playing quarterback. I mean, Zeb Nolan came to South Carolina to be a coach. He was 30 pounds overweight because he came to South Carolina to be a coach. And next thing you know, <laughs> he's got the wristband with all the plays, doing the best he can as a 30-pound overweight college quarterback. That ain't going to end well. I mean, that's just not – and I hear fans saying, um, he's too fat. He's not fast enough. I said, dude, he came here to coach. <laughs> he didn't come here to play um, college football. So, so d- does it all hinge on Rattler? Probably. I mean, it really does. I think it's all about – I mean, I think the football – I think the game of college football is morphed into something similar to the NFL. It's about quarterback play. And if you have good – I mean, look at Clemson. I mean, Clemson struggled a bit last year. Why? They lacked quarterback play. Why didn't they struggle the previous years? Because they didn't have any issues at quarterback. I mean, Deshaun Watson and uh, and Trevor Lawrence were as good as anybody I've ever seen in consecutive runs. And that uh, DJ Ugalele or whatever his name is, I mean, he just didn't live up to what they thought he was going to be. That, that'll kind of be something they've got to settle on. You know, they got this hot shot freshman that came in, big-time recruit. Um, how long do you stick with DJ if he appears to have not addressed some of the issues he had last year. I just think it starts and ends with quarterback. And last year at South Carolina, winning six games, winning seven games, including the bowl game with a graduate assistant quarterback was kind of an overachievement. They'll be better this year, but, you know, if the ball bounces wrong at Arkansas, they lose. Bounces wrong against Kentucky, they lose. I, I just think they're in that basket, not of deplorables, but of about six or eight teams that they play a very, very similar talent. Let's go to the phone. Steve in Florence. Hello, Steve. Good morning, guys. Is it just me or um, Biden's starting to sound a little like Hitler? Because, you know, calling us all this first racist, insurrectionists, now we're extremists or whatever. Um, does he not know that there's some crazy dude out there that's listening to this and, you know, is preparing for a war? I'm not sure what category I fall in. I mean, my kid's ready to go, just wait for it to happen. There's nobody like, hey, maybe you shouldn't say that, guy. Anyway, I'm going to recharge over the weekend, sit at the beach, the cold beer in my hand, not listen to anything. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Drink a beer and watch a little football. I'm with you, Steve. Yeah, I just got to yeah. notice here, um, the Williams-Brown Stadium is sold out. And that's kind of yeah. rare. I mean, they, they've had their issues with um, the fans being excited. I mean, the fans have always been excited and enthusiastic. And I like to say in, in, uh, in the first week of September, guess what? Everybody's got an A. I mean, everybody's made an A up until now. Everybody's had great preseasons. Everybody's kids worked out hard during the offseason. I mean, how many coaches have said, you know, we didn't prepare. We're probably going to suck. I mean, you know, you never hear a coach say that. So everybody has an A 
Um, some will turn into B's this weekend. Some will turn into D's this weekend. Um, but when I look at the Gamecocks and I see that quarterback, I'm going like, okay. I don't want to get overly excited, mm -hmm. but there's a reason to yeah. be somewhat optimistic. Somebody just said the best quarterback ever at South Carolina. didn't say that. I mean, that's somebody trying to hear something I didn't say. Did I say that Spencer Rattler was the best quarterback ever played at South Carolina? What did I say? He probably has the best skill set yep. of anybody to ever play um, quarterback at South Carolina. South Carolina's never had a top five player in the country at quarterback. I mean, they never had Clemson had two consecutive. Deshaun Watson and Trevor Lawrence were both top five recruits in America. Spencer Rattler was that kind of player when he signed with Oklahoma. Now something has happened along the way. Has he got his head clear? Is he in a better place? I do know this. I do know the reason Lincoln Riley and Shane Beamer, because remember Beamer was the uh, assistant coach at Oklahoma before he came here, so he was in the middle of recruiting Spencer Rattler. I know that Lincoln Riley and, and Shane Beamer have both told Spencer Rattler, you are one of the few people in this world that have a chance to change your family's financial future for generations. Now, if you choose to be a goofball, nothing will change. I mean, if you choose to be the guy that wears the hat backwards and doesn't go to the weight room and doesn't take his, you know, his position seriously, I mean, you'll end up working at a car wash, with all due respect to those who work at, at car washes. But if you get your head screwed on straight and you dedicate yourself to being the best you can be, you're going to change your family's financial future for generations to come, as Deshaun Watson did as Trevor Lawrence did. And I want to say something about Deshaun Watson because this is a, a state that eat, breathes, and sleeps that rivalry. I mean, it ain't been a lot of fun for me in the last six or seven or eight, however long it's been. Um, but, but there are Gamecock fans that take joy in, in watching Watson struggle. I ain't one of them. I mean, as I've gotten older and have a family and kids and uh, know people that have grandkids and have had issues and, and struggles as we all have in our lives, I take no joy at all in watching a human being struggle like he has just because he played football in an arch rival. And if you do, that's your problem, not his. That's your right. problem, not mine. I mean, it, there's, I mean, the, the rivalry is intense. Clemson is as loyal and their fan base is as loyal as any in America. I feel the same way about South Carolina. But, but there's got to be some humanism in this somewhere. There's got to be some consideration for humanity in here somewhere. And, I mean, he did some lousy things. And, I mean, I think he'll be held responsible for doing those lousy, lousy things. But but I don't celebrate that. I mean, it's bizarre to me that somebody would say, I mean, I'm not excusing. I'm certainly not excusing. And Clemson fans don't excuse it. I mean, if you, if you did those lousy things, there's a price you're going to pay for doing those lousy things. But to take joy in it and to celebrate about it, once again, um, I'm glad I don't have that bent jean. I got some bent jeans. That's one I'm glad I don't have. Let's go to the phone. Steve in Darlington. Hello, Steve. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Long time since I called, but I had to I had to opine in about something. The other day y'all were talking about the famous famous uh duets in music and I got a I got three of them for you. The Everly brothers. Mm, famously yep. famously hated each other. Brooks and Dunn. Yeah. Famous famously hated each other. Now, these two guys on the third one, they got along, which is probably why they didn't get as big as the Everly Brothers and Brooks and Dunn, and that'd be Lenny and Squiggy. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, Laverne and Shirley. Yeah, thank you for that. Go. That's Laverne and Shirley, right? That's right. Uh, yeah, I remember Lady <laughs> Squeaky a lot. I kind of wanted to be one of those guys or the other. I don't remember which one, but yeah, Squeaky was kind of the weird. Well, I mean, they were both kind of weird oh, cats. Yeah. yeah. But uh, in the world they of sitcom. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, the best. We had a kind of a conversation or a debate about the best duo ever. I thought of another duo after the show the other day. Sonny and Cher. Sonny and Cher. There you go. Yeah. Sonny and Cher. Um, was Dolly Parton and Kenny Rogers a duo? I mean, Dolly's a duo by herself, <laughs> but is Dolly oh, and Kenny Rogers you, a duo? You had to go there. Well, I mean, is Dolly, seriously, I mean, would, would they be Dolly a duo? Dolly and Kenny? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, Dolly had her yeah, separate I mean, career. Kenny yeah, obviously yeah, had his and they did, separate they did career. things together, but they were, you know, artists that came together on a project or two. Why does it seem there are more duos in country music than there are in rock and roll? Yeah. Give, give me a duo. In, I mean, the Everly Brothers would have been old. You know, that would have been, I don't know, like us before classic rock. Um, but give me a rock and roll duo. Is there? I can't really think. Frio, you're the rock and roll guy. I mean, is, how many is in Pearl Jam? Five or six or eight or ten? <laughs> uh, five. Okay. Well, technically six. They have a keyboarder now. Uh, <laughs> keyboarder. So I don't know if keyboard. this... Keyboarder. Um, I don't know if this counts because technically they have a band name, but the Gallagher brothers, Noel and uh, so Oasis. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't I, know if they count their was brothers. Flo- was, was Florida Georgia Line a duo? I, mean, I don't know. Guys. Montgomery Gentry? But that's country. Yeah. I mean, all of these bands are, yeah. all of these duos are country. Right. Why are there no, see, that may be one of the great mysteries of man. Why are there no rock and roll duos? I mean, Sonny and Cher wasn't rock. I mean, they were more contemporary. I mean, they were kind of movie stars and television stars and um, singers. And you know what I mean? It was yeah. kind of more of a shtick than it was a um, successful musical career. Uh, I got you, babe, was a big hit, right? I mean, they had a couple yeah. of big hits, but... um. Name a rock and roll duo of any significance. I can't think of one. Mm. Do want to mention real quick before we go to the phone, then we'll take a break. Uh, include it in our prize pack today. We're going to give a um, uh, some Pepsi product, courtesy of Pepsi to Florence, some Takes Mondays to Make Fridays t-shirts, two to be exact. But we're also got a, a set of tickets for tomorrow's race, the Xfinity Series, as well as Sunday's Cup Series, the Cookout Southern 500. Just remember the big one, the White Stripes. There you go. Okay, the white stripes. Never heard of them. Uh, Let's go to the phone, then take a break. Bobby in Orangeburg, listening to WTQS. Hi, Bobby. Good morning, gentlemen. And speaking of this college football issue, one big concern I see coming down the future, especially with the way the media is working, is that we're going to see Carolina and Clemson separated because Clemson is likely going to be headed into the new 32-team ESPN Nike Super League, and Carolina is not even going to be able to be invited in it. I would argue that, well, I'll tell you this, if there's 32 teams in the Super League, South Carolina has a better chance than Clemson does of being in it. I don't think so because Clemson has that Nike money, and Nike's going to make it for just their 32 schools. That would be interesting. That's kind of an interesting argument Mm -hmm. he's making. I've read some things about Nike. Let me tell you how big Nike is. Their rival is Under Armour. Nike's advertising budget is the same as Under Armour's revenue. (laughs) Take a break. Back in a minute. Rain, rain, stay away is my prayer for this weekend. I hope high school yeah. football has a good weather uh, night. I hope college tomorrow and tomorrow afternoon. You know, the college game, people say the game's at 730. It's rain. No, the, the game starts at about 230 for us. I mean, it's about a five-hour tailgating ordeal and uh, that leads to the game. You watch the games. You talk about the games. You eat good food. Uh, you drink a little booze and you 
um, tell war stories is kind of what I like doing. And I'm always excited about going back to um, to Gamecock hey, Park and, right. and the Wiggins Bryce Stadium. And, and, and as Clemson fans are and should be about their team. And for us Gamecock fans, some enhancements to the stadium experience. Well, you got some lights. lights. Oh, yeah, you yeah. Got, Rev got his lights this year. Oh, yeah. uh, Looking I'm forward excited to about that. Yeah, bright lights will be blinding be old fun. people like me. Um, so we got a programming note. Yes. We will not be on the air live Monday. There'll be the best of we could do. Wake up, Carolina. We'll be back live and in living color Tuesday. Um, and we do have an enhanced giveaway here this morning. Let's go and do it now to make sure we don't run out of time. 843-661-0937 is our number time for our Pepsis. Takes Mondays to make Fridays trivia question. The winner gets a not just a six-pack of Pepsi product and a couple of Takes Mondays to make Fridays t-shirts. He also gets a packet of tickets, two for Saturday's race tomorrow, the Xfinity Series, and then two for the Cookout Southern 500 on Sunday. So in the spirit of NASCAR, here's my trivia question. You ready? Name, I mean, Rev said made it hard. I mean, he, he told me, he said, make it hard. Name the three drivers that have more cup championships than any drivers ever. I mean, there's a three-way tie. I was going to say one. I thought about two. Rev said, no, make it hard. We're giving away a lot of cool prizes, including race tickets. Earn it. So somebody out there knows the answer. Name the three drivers that have won the same number of championships. I'll give you the number, seven championships. There are three drivers who have won seven NASCAR Cup Series championships. Who are those three drivers? Hi, you're on. You know the answer? Absolutely. It's going to be Dale Earnhardt Sr., Jimmy Johnson, and Richard Petty. You are right. Who is this in recalling from? Steve from Darlington. Okay. Lenny and Squiggy are going to be happy. <laughs> is there a Lenny and Squiggy guy? <laughs> Thank you, Steve. Appreciate that. Steve might change his weekend plans. He may go to the race now. He's go. got tickets on Saturday and Sunday. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate that. Thanks to Pepsi of Florence. I mean, they're kind and gracious. Uh, and thanks to Darlington Raceway for providing a couple of um, cool gifts there. Tickets to Saturday's and Sunday's race. And, um, yeah, Richard Petty, Dale Earnhardt Sr., and Jimmy Johnson uh, hold the most record, hold the record for most titles at seven each. Now, Johnson won, I think, what, four in a row? Six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Might have won five in a row. Uh, yeah, won five in a row from 2006 to 2010 in the, uh, remember, the low Chevrolet that he drove um, so long. Now, we've had a, a different now. The, the, the playoff season is different today than it was back in the day. Uh, when Earnhardt won all of his and Petty won all of his, there was a series or a season-long points championship. Now we got this new playoff format. Uh, is one harder? I don't know. It's different. It's obviously um, different. But congratulations to Steve. Thanks to Pepsi of Florence. And uh, thanks to you. Thanks to you for um, seeing us through the first, what, three quarters of the year? Now we got September doing that. Actually got a fourth of the year, a third of the year. Got two-thirds of the year in the rear view. One-third of the year ahead of us. Um, college football will be something a great weekend dominant this weekend. Racing is a big deal, especially now that they're in Darlington first weekend of the playoff uh, series. So there's a lot to lose. The team shift gears from the long run to the short run. And we've still got our Braves. And I said it earlier, I'll say it again. The Mets are not going to lose the NLA East. The Braves will have to win it. And I think Rev agrees with me. I do. Biggest Braves fan I know says, yeah, I mean, there was a day you could count on the Mets to fold I don't believe this is one of them years because it looks to me like those two pitchers they got are the glue that will hold them we together. Still go get it. Yeah, still go get it. So enjoy your weekend. Stay safe. Um, and we'll talk come Tuesday morning.